This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 234. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lom Ramayasha, and today we've got another Simulpubs Roundup with a collection of new titles from a lot of different publishers. We got something from Oski, Manga Up, Manga Mo, Comicy, and of course Shonen Jump and Manga Plus. An eclectic variety of titles, a lot of interesting different stuff to talk about, and I always appreciate having new stuff from a lot of different publishers to talk about, but there's been so much new stuff that we will not be getting to everything on this episode. We've selected 10 titles to talk about today, and we will save any other new titles, such as some of the latest Manga Plus editions like History's Mentalist and stuff like that for another episode. But for today, we've got 10 titles across a lot of different publishers, and I'm looking forward to getting into them. Yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, just to speak to what you mentioned just now, Simulpubs are also getting to the point where, especially with Manga Plus in particular, where, as we've talked about on the show before, it seems like they are committed to bringing out as much that comes out on Shonen Jump Plus as possible. This year in particular has been kind of hard to try to keep up with every Simulpub, so listeners do not be surprised if moving forward, depending on how many Simulpubs we let kind of build up in between episodes, that we might have to do this thing more often where we are going to have to pick a selection of Simulpubs to talk about. No guarantees that we'll be able to cover every Simulpub from now on, but, you know, it just kind of depends when we get to them and everything and how much, you know, comes up. We're going to kind of play that by ear, but for now, like Lum said, we are going to be covering a selection of what's come out over the past few months, but I'm fine with it personally because I think we picked a lot of good stuff to talk about, so I'm excited to talk about some of these. Yes, we each personally picked four titles, and then we have two titles that we were given an opportunity to preview or were asked to consider for coverage. And we'll be starting off with those titles on this episode, starting with Mekuide, Asuki's latest simulpub edition. This series is the manga adaptation of the Mekuede anime series done by Studio Triff and by original creator Sai Okamoto that has been an independent project for the last few years. It had a Kickstarter to fund a pilot episode that came out a few years ago. And now it is being developed into a full-fledged anime series that will premiere next year. I got to preview the first episode of it at AX this year and interview with Okamoto-san and the producers of the series. So look forward to that interview being published on the Mong Maritz website. But Yeah, I have been following this project for a long time. I supported the original Kickstarter for the pilot. So I was very excited for this series to really finally become like a full-fledged project. And this manga is a great preview of the fuller story to come. Basically, the story of this, it's about this kid, Hikaru Amatsuga. One day in class, he hears a mysterious voice in his head that he searches for the source of. It turns out to be this robotic living arm, Alma, who, when Hikaru finds him, is like kind of really low power. Uh, and then Hikaru ends up kind of fusing with Alma, like, or rather, Alma fuses with his hoodie. But Alma needs Hikaru's energy. 
as we find out, mental energy to kind of sustain himself. Because if Akaru goes away from Alma, if he walks away and leaves Alma behind, Alma immediately loses energy again. So they're kind of stuck as a pair to each other. And in the process of being pursued by people after Alma, the mysterious Kagami group corporation. Helma and Hikaru get taken under the protection of ARMS, which is an organization that seeks to free Mechoedes, which are these living robotic organisms, from the control of the Kagami group, who is stripping them of their free will through this process, shackling, and is using them for criminal enterprises, it seems. And Alma apparently is connected to the Kagami group and ARMS. The leader of ARMS' Mechoated partner, Fist, refers to Alma as his little brother. But Alma himself has lost his memories of, like, who he was and his significance. And he is interested in working with ARMS to find out. But he also is just a very kind person who, like, really just wants to do good. He's very encouraging of Hikaru. He really wants to help other people when they're in trouble. And his influence encourages Hikaru, who usually would not really interfere with other people's business or really be the hero type, to kind of grow himself into becoming someone who also helps others and also stands up for what is right. And the first chapter has this text of saying, you know, this encounter with Alma, you know, even though it leads to him saving the world, even though it is sort of a big thing in a broader sense for his life personally, it didn't change that much ultimately coming out of it, except that he learned to grow up for a little bit. And that's kind of the core idea for Akaru's character arc is that it is like a series of him through his relationship of Alma and his influence learning to kind of grow up and mature as a person. But there are other elements at play here in the story. Uh, Karu is kind of under the protection of Aki, who is one of the more lead agents of ARMS, who has twin Mechoedes, Sinus and Dex, who are attached to her ties. And Aki is very standoffish, kind of very serious about doing her job, and very threatening as well if Hikaru is, like, stepping out of line or has a no-nonsense policy when anyone is interfering with her. But Aki also is motivated to find the user of a worm-type Mikuede that, you know, has something to do with her, her past, that she is out to get revenge on Closure 4. And one of those worm-type Mekuedes is in the possession of Jun Kagame, who has the Ouroboros Mekuede and is the brother of the Kagame group's president. And he currently has defeated Aki and, like, stolen her Mekuedes. And if a Mekuede host has their Mekuedes stolen, not only do they use their power, but, you know, they are, their life becomes a mortal danger because it kind of saps out their Arbitrium, which is, like, the energy that comes from humans' mental energy that fuels Mekuede. Removing the Mekuede from the host like, causes that to seep out of their bodies and puts their life at risk. 
And so now Hikaru and Alma have to team up to recover Aki's Mekawedes and defeat Jun. But Jun is supported by other members of the Kagami group, including, you know, members from the expansion department three that are set out to hunt Mekawedes, in particular Alma, and the White Ravens, which are the elite group of enforcers in the Kagami group, who are led by the mysterious Toto, who also has a worm-type Mekawede. But yeah, I really do enjoy the series. It is like a very simple shonen action story with these like cool mechanical arms partnership concept. I always do like this kind of, you know, buddy team up dynamic these kind of series have. It reminds me a little bit of Mega Man Star Force in terms of like partnership relationship. But yeah, I do really like the relationship between Alma and Akaro. Alma is a very fun character. I like how in comedic moments, his design like super kind of deforms a little bit to be just like an outline. Uh, in general, like Alma has like a very, you know, likable personality just because of how earnest and encouraging he is. And it makes Hikaru, who is, you know, a little more of a typical teen shonen protagonist. And not in the type of the optimistic, like, go-getter sense, but in the utter type of someone who is, like, a reluctant hero who needs to be kind of cajoled into it. I think that their dynamic makes Hikaru and his arc a little more interesting. And so the interplay between the characters are really strong. I don't necessarily feel like Aki's relationship with Sinus and Dex is quite as, like, interesting. But Aki herself is probably my favorite character just because of, like, the humorous aspects of her intensity that is played. Like, one of my favorite scenes is when Aki infiltrates, like, joins uh, Hikaru's classroom and she's, like, told to sit anywhere in the class. And she takes a desk and she takes it from one row and just moves it over and slams it right next to Hikaru's desk and then sits on top of it and just lo- <laughs> looms over him saying, hey, neighbor, in <laughs> a very threatening way. And that is very funny. So, like, I really like Aki's character. I think she's a lot of fun. I'm very interested in seeing more characters develop. Currently, the manga, up to 10 chapters, has adapted up ways to the middle of what will be episode 4 of the anime. I know this because Okamoto-san said that the pilot for Mikawede will be remade as episode 4 of the, the TV series. So the first four chapters comprise what ends up being episode one, which I've seen. And so currently now we're kind of the middle point of what will be episode four. And so I'm very curious, especially to see the story after the upcoming confrontation with Jun, the directions it'll go from there, because then it'll be completely past the point in the story that I am now familiar with. But yeah, I am very happy to see this series now fully being realized after a very long time in development, and I am looking forward to following it along. Um... Yeah, I, for context, I have not been following this project. You know, I, I'd seen it around. I've obviously seen, like, you know, promotional art for it. So, like, I'm, I'm, like, kind of familiar with this project and what it was all about. I have only read the manga counterpart for this. I have not seen the anime. I am interested in checking it out at some point because I have to be honest, I read the first four chapters of this and it kind of left me feeling cold. Like, I didn't dislike it, but... I just kind of thought, oh, this, this seems okay. Like, this could, you know, turn into something later, maybe. I don't know. It just really wasn't hooking me in, personally. 
I think the story's fine. I think the characters are fine. Like you were saying earlier, I, I like Alma as kind of like the sort of mascot character almost. And I also do love the more comedic bits where they do kind of like, you know, cheapify him a little bit. And he, he kind of looks like a hand puppet almost. Like, I really like his simplified design. I think it's very, very cute. He's probably the character that like I latched onto the most so far. I don't know about you, I kind of felt like between the actual art, the paneling, and the sound effects, I feel like the action scenes in particular are kind of cluttered. I had to read some of these a couple times in a row to really kind of like get what was going on, because I think the sound effects especially kind of cover a little too much of the art for my liking, but that's just my opinion. I don't know how you feel about that in particular, or that like didn't really bother you too much at all, or maybe that's just not a problem you had while reading this. I don't know. I think the actual lettering is very good, but I do agree with the clutter in a lot of like action scenes or scenes with a lot of movement. I do think that can reduce kind of the the clarity. And I will say that in terms of comparing the story between mediums, I think one of the strengths of the anime is kind of the dynamic fluidity of the animation, particularly in the action scenes. And I think in trying to translate that, replacing kind of that like energy with just busyness doesn't quite capture the same effect. It kind of does make it a little less clear, I think, at times than maybe it should be. Then maybe a little more of a simplified approach would have more of an impact. Mm -hmm. Basically, that's kind of where I'm at, is that I'm more interested in checking out the anime version of this, because I feel like whatever problems I have with the manga version, I feel like probably aren't present in the anime version, possibly, at least from what it sounds like you're telling me, so... I don't know, like, this is the kind of thing that I think I will enjoy better animated, but for now, the manga wasn't really pulling me in as much as I would like. Again, it's it's not bad, it's just, I just think this is the kind of thing that I think I would rather watch animated, personally. That is totally fair. I will say that, while I do think that the art can be a little busy, in general, I think Koyoka's artwork has a really good sense of dynamism in many parts in terms of establishing scale between characters, particularly in perspective and particularly for like impact of uh, emotion or like the drama. Like I mentioned the comedic moment of Aki just looming over Hikara before, but there are also other more dramatic moments of like, you know, especially with Kyoka's use of very harsh shadows and shading to make some really kind of intense, dramatic-looking panels and moments. And I do think that lends the manga a lot of impact, and it lends it a lot of intrigue. In general, the paneling is also very interesting. I think that when Alma and Akaru, you know, do their first really big punch against Aki when fighting her off, like, that is a really great page spread uh, in terms of, like, the way Alma's fist is, like, kind of crossing between panels and the way the panel layout itself is designed, how it kind of leads you through the pages. And that is one case where I feel like almost the busyness of the sound effects almost does work. I, I mean, maybe towards the left of the page, the oom of the boom, I maybe would have removed because I do think it's obscuring some of the art. But in general, I think that a lot of the scenes do have a lot of really strong impact and it has a very strong sense of style to it that I do really appreciate. It is different in like kind of aesthetic feel to me from the anime, but I do think that it is very visually interesting a lot of the time. Okay, okay. But yeah, other than that, I don't really have like a whole lot to say about this other than I would like to check out the anime for it. 
Yes, and people can still check out the pilot episode, which is very searchable. It's officially available on YouTube. And as I've previewed the first episode, I do recommend it when it comes out next year. You know, I was talking with Evan about it. And, you know, I think we both agree that it has a very, like, oh, early Studio Trigger feel. And I think mm. it's because Studio Trigger, you know, this is their first really big project that, that they're getting off the ground. So they're really pulling off all of their energy into the project. And I think that it uh, shows really well in terms of, like, the liveliness of the animation and just a general uh, palpable enthusiasm you can feel for the project on screen. So I I'm definitely in really big supporter of it because, you know, it's a great story of like an independent animation studio and animated project really getting off the ground. And it is a really enjoyable story that I'm curious to see where it's going to go with. So, yeah, I definitely recommend it and I'm happy to read this companion manga as a little preview of the story to come in the upcoming anime. Our next title was uh, given to us to preview from Mangamo, The Ugly Duckling of the Entertainment District. This series is by Narukaria, and it follows Ezra, who was abandoned by her previous family. It is implied that she has been a child slave for different families for a long time, just passed around between families. And her latest family has just abandoned her like an empty lot. And so with nowhere to go... She finds, like, a shrine and eats the food there. She's, like, hiding out, getting shelter from the rain. And when she wakes up, she finds herself, like, in chains and being bought by this man in a clot eye mask, Yahiro Sagami, who is known as a human trafficker, who is known as, like, someone who, like, sells different people to brothels. And he brings Ezra to the Sagamiya brothel and basically tells tells her, well, you know, you can eat your fill here, you can get comfortable clothes and shelter here, but you need to work here to be a courtesan uh, if you want to build a new home for yourself. And he believes in her potential of becoming the star of the red light district of this world. And this seems to be a different world from the human world, as is referenced several times by characters, particularly when Ezra encounters her, what ends up being her first customer accidentally, Koino Jukina, who is a moneylender who asked her, how did you end up in this world? And it makes Ezra reflect on, wait a minute, how did I go from the shrine to being here in this place? And there's also this element of like the text on the signs is all backward. It's like mirrored. It seems to be some sort of mirror spiritual world. But regardless of how Ezra got there, there definitely is a reason why Sagami in particular sought her out because he sees a resemblance between her and another woman he knew from his past, Ruri. I mean, implications have not been fully explored there, but it definitely seems that Yahuro is trying to fulfill a promise he made to Ruri to look out for Ezra and potentially maybe like Ruri was her mother. And probably that will turn out to be the reveal or case. 
But it does also lead questions of like, okay, what is Sagami's relationship with Ruri? And like, what is his real intentions with Ezra in terms of like being protector, but also telling her, hey, like make a living here as a prostitute, essentially. And Ezra herself, though, in terms of like her motivation, like she definitely wants to enjoy the comforts of the good food and just like having this lifestyle here where she actually is being treated with respect by people or at least is like faced head on instead of just being looked down on even by the people who are bullying her like her rival prostitute Kamino but she is very reluctant in like selling her body and it's like very much standing firm against that and it's seemingly following different ways though of like attracting and pleasing people like with Koi Nojo she is like just by you know talking with him and being like an interesting personality she entertains him so he ends up being kind of her her first customer in a sense but now she is kind of being trained in the ways of a courtesan She's shadowing Haritsuru, who is the number three courtesan at the Sagamiya, and she admires Haritsuru's grace, but also is a little taken aback at just how casually she can engage in sex with people that she doesn't love. And so Ezra is kind of just like at this place of like, can she make a life for herself here at the Sagamiya and as a courtesan without selling her body? which is something that a lot of the people around her are skeptical that she can do, but she is like adamant that she will do. And yeah, I do think that's very interesting. I do really like Ezra as a character. I appreciate that, you know, she kind of finds like her spunk and willingness to kind of talk back and like fight back and like fight to protect herself very quickly on. And I really appreciate her. she gains her confidence. Like when she's like being confronted by that perverted Buddha type character who wants to buy her for prostitution. Like she just throws herself off the bridge rather than sell her body to him. And that's like a pretty badass moment where she's like, no, you know, I'm, I'm doing things in my own terms. I'm not yours to be traded to or just something for you to use. And I appreciate that, that she's kind of reclaiming her ownership of herself and sense of agency as someone who's basically just been passed between people. And as we've seen in like flashbacks from her past, potentially has been like sexually abused or assaulted in the past, or at least she's been physically abused. So yeah, I appreciate this as kind of a place where she can kind of heal and get a sense of power and agency. And I am curious to see how the series will navigate this situation she's in where she wants to make it as a courtesan and make a home for herself here but without the element of prostitution so i do think that is really a really interesting conflict dynamic and i am curious about the you know relationship that yahuro really has with her uh in terms of like you know why he selected her uh and why he's looking out for her in the way that he is I will say the series, I think, gives me a lot of Ancient Magus's bride vibes. So I would definitely, I mean, especially in terms of like, you know, setup premise. I think that Ezra as a character is, you know, she is much more spunky, I think, than the protagonist of Ancient Magus's bride, who is like a lot more shy and observant. Like Ezra is like much more of like a... When she has something she wants, she really does, like, go for it. And she does not care much for, like, decorums. 
for bothering people. Like when she like smells like good food, she just barges into her room, uh, even though it's like, you know, full of clients being entertained and stuff. And she's like not afraid to talk back to someone and say like, hey, why aren't you eating this food? If you're not going to eat it, I'm going to eat it. You know, so I like that element of her personality. But uh, yeah, if you do like stuff like Angel Mangus's Ride, I think that this series might really appeal to you. I don't know if necessarily, though, there'll be that kind of romantic tension element between Ezra and Sagami. The series is not really giving up that vibes. So that's a big difference from Magus's Bride is that there's not that kind of element there. But I am really enjoying the series. And yeah, I think that it has some really strong art as well and good character design. So yeah, I enjoyed what I previewed at it. I'm curious to continue to read more. I don't think I have a whole lot else to add other than I, I do think this is very interesting so far. I agree that I think the most interesting thing about this series so far is seeing Isora trying to navigate this world and trying to do whatever she can to not have to resort to just giving up her body and giving up her agency, you know, if she absolutely does not have to. And I totally respect that. I really like how that clashes with the other courtesans, though, because uh, I think my favorite moment in this series so far is when we see Kamino, you know, the courtesan from earlier on in the series, come up to her and kind of confront her about, you know, Isora's want to not have to just give up her body. And Kamino kind of is sort of insulted by that in a way where it's like, well, you know, she's a courtesan and she feels like, oh, well, I don't really have a choice if I want to survive, which, you know, I, I think that's valid. I think I find that conflict between the two of them interesting is because I think what they both want is valid. And it's just kind of interesting to see, you know, Asora still try to stick by her principles, but at the same time, also kind of gain a sort of respect for what courtesans have to do and like kind of how they sort of handle themselves or whatnot. Like, I, I think a lot of that is probably some of the most interesting material in this series so far to me. Yeah, I do appreciate that moment with Kamenon as well as with Hard Suru is that they have a pride in what they do. Like they aren't like just forced into it. Like they entered. I mean, there is a sense of like you do what you have to do, but there's also they do have a sense of their own dignity and pride and like, hey, we're doing this on our own terms. And so like Kamenon feels kind of insulted. It's like she feels she's being looked down upon yeah. by being called like some prostitute by Asura when she has a lot more respect for herself and her work than what she feels that Ezra is like implying or giving her. And in Ezra's perspective, though, she doesn't want to earn like respect and status by selling herself and her body in that way, even if she does come to recognize, oh, there is like a beauty and grace in how hard Asura goes about doing it in particular. But like she says, you know, I appreciate being told thank you by Coin Nojo. You know, that's the first time anyone's ever actually said, like, thank you for something that I did. And I want to just be told that more without selling my body. And that's like how she wants to go about the world. And I, yeah, I appreciate that kind of like different conflict in just approach and like how these characters are like making a life for themselves in this world. For sure. I'm sure it goes for at least most of the other courtesans in the establishment that like most of them probably don't feel like they have much of a choice outside of using their body to make a living. But at the same time, the story makes you feel like that they still have some sort of sense of agency almost. 
they have their self-respect and like digging in tea. They like aren't humiliated or ashamed for selling themselves. Like even if they don't necessarily enjoy it. Like when we see Harusuro having sex with her client, her look on her face doesn't really look like one of enjoyment. But as like Ezra sees, like she sees that even so like Harutsuru looks very beautiful and dignified while doing the act anyway. So it's like, you know, she has, she doesn't like feel a sense of like shame for indulging this. It's like a job to her and she does it very well and she knows it. And like she takes pride in herself in that. Mm -hmm, For sure. I just like that the story doesn't necessarily present their point of views as like one way or another. Like I, I, I like that we don't feel like we have to pick sides here. Like both ways of living their life are totally valid. Absolutely. I, I do I do appreciate that. Like it's not a sex work negative manga. Like it's a manga that acknowledges the reality of like that people can be forced into this without their will, but it also acknowledges that there are people who do do sex work who like actively are doing it like for themselves, for their own purposes, and they don't feel ashamed to do it. Like they take either pleasure or they take pride in what they're doing. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the thing that strikes me the most about this series so far. Like you were saying earlier, there's definitely like a bit of a mystery element to stuff like, you know, with Asora reminding Yahiro of someone in his past. I'm, I'm interested in learning about that. There might even be a bit of a mystery as to like how Asora got transported to this other world in the first place. Maybe you never know. A lot of stuff's kind of up in the air at this point, but I would not mind coming back to this series at some point to read more of it and see how it further develops. Totally. My theory about how she ended up in this other world is that by eating the food in the shrine, she kind of got spirited away there. Probably, yeah. Much like in the movie, spirited away. Yes, yes. That makes the most sense. But yeah, I, I thought I thought this was pretty interesting. I would read more. Yeah. Now we'll be moving on to titles from Comic Heap, starting with a thematically similar title to Ugly Duckling, or at least somewhat similar title in terms of setting premise, Firefly Wedding. Firefly Wedding is by Tachibana Oreko. It's a relatively recent series that, you know, now is uh, being simuled by Comic Heap. I've heard a lot of buzz about this one. I can see why, because it has really strong arc and a really uh, compelling, interesting premise. It's about Sadako, who is the eldest daughter of the Kirigaya family, who's uh, like a very prestigious Japanese family. Seems to be set in like kind of late Meiji period. But yeah, she is basically, you know, at a at a time where women of her status are really just kind of traded away in marriages. They don't really have much choice or agency of, like, who they can choose to marry. But, you know, Sadako is, like, very, like, loyal to her father and wants to fulfill the role of being a good daughter by marrying someone that her dad approves of and that will, like, kind of bring honor to her family, her father in particular. But Sadako, unfortunately, has had a weak heart from childhood She needs a lot of medical care, and because of her weak heart, there is a likelihood that she doesn't have many more years to live. So even though she gets, like, marriage proposals, she ends up turning them down, or she ends up getting turned down because of her condition, and also the fact that she has, because of previous operations, like, a huge, like, scar on her chest. 
One day when going just out in the town, though, she ends up being kidnapped by kidnappers who, to this point, we don't really know their full intentions or who hired them. But they basically kidnap her for ransom with plans to kill her if they don't get the ransom by a certain time or even if they do. And she ends up, in order to survive, kind of befriending and offering a marriage proposal to the assassin who is keeping watch over her, Shinpei, because she needs to offer him something that is more worthwhile than what his employers are offering. Well, she doesn't have money on her right now, so she says, well, I myself, as a daughter of the Kirigaya family, am very valuable. So if you marry me, if you take me, you know, that can be your your compensation basically but Shinpei starts to want Satoko for more than just status or just her value because he finds how she is like willing to kiss him even after he slaughtered a bunch of assassins that have come after him and like has blood splatter on his face really captivating he falls in love and considered her because that's the first time anyone has seen him kill like that and really accepted him and so he genuinely starts to want to like marry Satoko and says like you know I'll protect you I'll make you happy and so Satoko has to go along with this and it ends up that they have been taken to this place called Celestial Maiden Isle which is like this red light district island that is full of like elite prostitutes but the only way to leave the isle because it is guarded by these powerful enforcers that like pursue people who try to leave the island illegitimately and uh, slaughter them basically that in order to buy her freedom on the island as a woman she she needs to become a prostitute and she needs to have a client buy her freedom from the brothels that she's at. So Shinpei takes her to the brothel that, you know, he has long time been a bodyguard for and is friends with like people there called Izekichi. Which is the lowest level brothel on the island because it's full of like kind of the problem women or the women who aren't traditionally like attractive to a lot of the clients who come to the island. So Sadoko has to find like a client who is willing to purchase her freedom price there. But she also has to do it while Shinpei is still watching over her and is also like getting jealous if she gets close to other men. So he kind of is interfering with her work even though she is trying to like buy her freedom and has promised to take him with her and stuff. But in addition to that, she also does start to develop feelings for Shinpei. And moreover than that, like she becomes, she starts to really question as idea what it means to be in love with someone and what it means to like really love someone because she has never even given love like a really much of a second thought because she never thought she would marry for love. But now having Shinpei say that he loves her and seeing other examples of love like with her kind of mentor friend at the brothel Aoi and like her story of like her having a sweetheart who like comes and had promised to buy her freedom and like learning about her story she starts to think about like what it does it mean to actually love someone and are the feelings that she's growing for Shinpei herself like the care that she's starting to develop for him is that feelings of love so that's kind of the interesting conflict that the series grapples with. It's like kind of this growing feelings of love and like Shinpei and Satoko both kind of wrestling with what does it mean to actually love someone? And I think that's very interesting. 
And then it's also this challenge of like, how will they be able to leave the island? Because they try to escape without like having Satoko's freedom be brought. And that does not go very well because Shinpei's assassin mentor and the island's enforcer, Mitsueda, you know, leads the force after them and uh, very seriously wounds Shinpei. So that is probably not going to work again. So they have to figure out a way off the island in terms of like getting a client to buy Satoka's freedom or perhaps she may be rescued by a bodyguard from her family who he feels sense of responsibility for losing her under his watch. So he's come to the island to kind of find and rescue her. And also, like, her family knows that she's safe because of a would-be client of hers, Natobe, a police chief's son who is a nasty drunk. Like, after they kind of bring him back to his senses after he accidentally drinks alcohol and lets his, like, utter personality go wild. Like, he promises is to like let Sudoku's family know that she's okay so yeah that's kind of the situation as it is now and once again I think the art for this is very striking like I do think that it can find like a very interesting sense of danger and beauty both in the way it depicts like Shinpei uh, and his like kind of killing scenes uh, and like scenes with him like covered in blood in particular, like that mixed quality of Satoko kissing him in a pool of the blood of his enemies uh, while he's still covered in blood and scenes like that. So it's like this interesting mix of like, and you can definitely consider Shinpei a yandere character <laughs> in terms of like his obsessiveness towards Satoko. But he also kind of has this puppy dog quality of like he, he has like this innocence to him even though he's a killer in terms of like he doesn't even understand necessarily what it means to love but he's just kind of very like earnestly submitted with Satoko and very childish and like how he like plays with and taunts her of like oh you know if you're not going to say you love me excuse me I might like leave or like he like tries to flirt with other women to make her jealous he does stuff like that or he like jokes about oh maybe I should just go off and die if you don't like say you love me or something like that and eventually satoko like just uh gets fed up to the point of like you know saying shut up i'm trying to think here about like how i'm going to strategize to win this client over so we can get off the island for both our sakes and he becomes like smitten with that too of like oh wow i I like the way she gets angry and takes charge like that but he also has kind of this wounded thing of like when satoko is really upset with him he also becomes kind of like dejected so that childishness of shinpei makes him a very endearing character and also makes him feel like more of a, a safe character for Sotoko to be around because after like the first couple chapters you don't feel like oh she's really in danger from him even though he is a dangerous person to many other people but also because we come to understand that he is very beloved by a lot of the people like on the island because he's known as like the protector of a lot of the women there from like rowdy and unruly clients and so a lot of the other women on the island you know really do love him and respect him a lot, especially one person in particular at the Brotel who actually is loving to a possessive degree, who like forms a rivalry with Satoko, who's kind of like the bully of the Brotel. 
And that's another conflict there between Satoko and Yukari. But yeah, like, to just go back to kind of the quality uh, in the art, I also think, yeah, that dichotomy between, like, this playfulness and, like, the seriousness and danger is expressed through the art and how, like, you know, you can have, like, these intense, like, kind of creepy moments of battle or, like, danger, but then you can have, like, kind of these lighthearted moments within, like, kind of the same span of a chapter scene within that same space. Uh, and the manga has a very deft way of kind of going between those two uh, extremes and how it frames things, how it presents its characters. And uh, I really like the character designs in the series, too. I think they're all very distinctive, detailed as well. And so uh, I really appreciate that there is a lot of personality in pretty much every character and how they are depicted and also in the setting as well. It's like very beautifully drawn. Yeah, I can't really say I have, like, a whole lot else to add. I I only read, like, the first three chapters of this, but I really liked what I read. I think this is definitely pretty up my alley. You know, something that is set in old-time Japan. I do like my Japanese period pieces. I'm also very into this trend of manga where it's, like, two unlikely people kind of forced in a relationship and kind of having to make it work. This one in particular, I do like the idea of both parties kind of like trying to play the game and manipulate each other to like try to keep one or the other like attached to them for their own survival kind of thing. You know, their their dynamic in particular is super, super good. And I, I do think the art is the best thing about this series, especially in chapter two, where Shinpei protects Satoko from all the thugs and how just absolutely wild he goes on killing all these people and just like how demonic he looks some some really great single page spreads in that chapter in particular i think the page of satoko kissing shinpei while there are just bodies all over the place and like her image is reflected in the pool of blood like that shit's beautiful <laughs> yeah it's it's really really striking other than that this is definitely another one where i'm sad i didn't read more but, like, I definitely want to come back to this eventually because it's a very striking series all around. And I, I just, I really want to see where it goes. Yeah, it's macabre and beautiful. Like, I do really appreciate that uh, dichotomy. And again, I think that the central thesis of the series of, like, exploring questions of, like, you know, what does it mean to really love someone? And what does it mean to kind of, like, live for love? How does one like kind of live to find love is really, really compelling. I think the most compelling story so far is with Aoi, who Satoko befriends and finds out like her story that her paramour, like they planned to like elope, like he was going to buy her freedom and they were going to get married. But Aoi hasn't seen him in a long time. And so she feels that she's been abandoned and she almost commits suicide. And like Satoko just kind of talks her down after a while by saying like you know i think that at first she just tries to kind of appeal to her kindly but then at, at some point she's like okay you know what if you want to jump jump but i'm not i won't do that i don't think that's right and that's a dumb thing for you to do you should continue to live and like find love again basically and I really kind of like that, that moment of hope that, like, she inspires in Aoi to, like, not give up on herself and not give up on the fact that she is loved because Satoko admires and loves her. And she feels like, don't give up on your dream if you haven't truly felt satisfied that you have given your all into achieving it, you know, because otherwise that is just running away. 
And uh, yeah, that was a really great moment. So yeah, I'm I'm really liking what the series is exploring and doing so far. And it's full of like generally some sweet moments too in the midst of like kind of like all the danger that is facing the characters. And particularly as Satoko and Shinpei start to grow genuine feelings for each other. That kind of makes their relationship with each other more honest. Like Satoko gets to one where she's like, I'm not going to lie to you like about how I feel anymore. Shinpei and Shinpei like starts to become more respectful to Satoko's feelings too and more considerate of them so I'm really liking their relationship and how it develops so yeah I'm I'm really finding this a compelling series so far and uh, I'm look forward to continuing to see how it goes oh yeah for sure now for a swerve uh, into a very different kind of series but also a very fun one we've got star strike it rich this is a new series by Sanjovic, Yabako, and Mam. They are the creators of How Heavy Are the Dumbbells You Lift, which is this fun sort of edutainment like a weightlifting manga that, you know, I had a little bit of mixed feelings for just because of some of the, the sexualization in it. And I, interestingly, this series kind of avoids some of that, even though it is also like kind of a, a manga about very buff ladies. Yeah. And they're duking it out uh, in the ring of uh, MMA, underground MMA. This series is about a group of like three childhood friends our main main character is Tenma Nozomi, who is like in her late 20s. She is an underground MMA combatant, but unfortunately, she's kind of been let go from most of the underground fighting circuits because... Her fights kind of drag on too long. She can't really work the ring in terms of making a show of it just because of like her fighting style and also because of her limited abilities or more limited abilities because of her detached retina, which also is why she had to give up on her original dream of going pro. So she recently was let go from her latest place and, you know, she's like kind of having drinks and discussing her woes and problems with her best friends, with Tanihana, who is uh, the young Yakuza boss, head of the Jinguji family and Yuri Ichika who is a crooked cop who is in the Metro PD's juvenile division after getting demoted from the crimes division and Yori is like wanting to figure out like okay how can I get off all these young thugs off the streets and curb that problem so like that'll look good for me and I can get promoted back up again and Hana's like oh our Yagasa group activities aren't barely bringing the money they used to like how can I like make the group's finances stable again and Nova's like well uh, how can I do to get myself a new job and continue to work in the world of underground MMA fighting and then they she comes to a realization oh well here's like our business opportunity here's a way we can solve all of our problems after witnessing a brawl between two girls like in the streets she's like oh there's like this untapped market for underground uh fighting circuits for women and so they set one up but very quickly even though they have initial early success tenma realizes okay we need like a real big draw to keep things interesting we need like really good professional fighters because we can't just rely on amateurs because people will get bored of that after a while and especially because you know their initial customers are like the friends of the fighters so that's not sustainable 
So she ends up talking about this with uh, Mitani and Ori. And Yori is like, oh, I know the girl. I know just a girl we should recruit. And so they go after Hongo Hina, who seemingly is like a normal looking high school girl. Like she doesn't even look very buff or anything. But her appearance belies that she is actually a very, very dangerous person. Because she was the adopted daughter of a cult leader, the Army of God cult leader, who adopted her trained her in like martial arts but also according to rumors she may have been the real mastermind behind the cult becoming more militant and calling for being an armed insurrection and what's even more she knows where the cult's chemical weapons that they had stored up and disappeared when the police searched for them are stored and she like teases hey if you give me a fight that's worth my while i might tell you where they are so they end up recruiting Hina and Hina is initially kind of impressed enough by Nozomi's ability to like hold her own against her in a fight. Oh, you're not a slowpoke like all these other folks. So she's like, okay, I'm interested in like fighting you. But if you also bring me people that, you know, are worth my while, that will also uh, appeal to me. And I'll, I might tell you a bit about where these chemical weapons are. So initially they kind of bring her in and she like kind of defeats like everyone in like one blow. But eventually they come up with this idea, okay, we really need to put out the call for like more experienced combatants. And they put up a big like kind of prize to like appeal to those people. And so Iori also is like, okay, let me go into my criminal contacts and like bust out these super strong delinquent girls to fight her too. And so they've kind of now set up kind of this mini tournament to kind of give Hina good fights that are worth her while. And that seems to have worked as she's like now fighting the youngest of the Seno sisters that Iori brought in. But I'm, I'm having a feeling with the way these matchups are, that these fights with these sisters. The sisters are going to be jobbers, so like the real fight will be between Hina and Yuzua Lee, who is dubbed the explosive kung fu girl. She's like a very classically designed like Chinese like martial artist girl. And she's known as the champion of the ball of slaughter underground fighting tournament. So it's an interesting, it's a fun, crazy MMA manga about this like crazy girl with literal like star eyes. Uh, she might be a distant <laughs> relative of uh, the characters in Oshinoko. Probably. Joke, <laughs> but like, you know, she's this, she has star eyes and she's like very earnest and eager of like, oh, I want to fight really strong people. So she'd almost be like a known and protagonist if she wasn't so vicious in her fighting style and brutal and cruel and threatening and intimidating in like how she's like oh you think you've captured me but who's the one who's really been uh, trapped like they there's this moment where they're like is she working for us or are we working for her who's really ensnared who in, in their their schemes here but yeah so, like, the character designs are all really strong, but I also think, like, the, of course, the action scenes, like, particularly the way when Hina fights and, like, utterly brutalizes uh, her opponents, those are always very dynamic and striking. Oh, yeah. Obviously, like, Mom had a really great sense of, like, anatomy and great sense of, like, drawing muscle and stuff in how heavy are the dumbbells you lift. And so I think that really translates well here in this martial arts series where, like, yeah, you can really get a great sense of the weight, the musculature of the characters, even when they're, like, 
deformed in like super exaggerated ways in almost Baki-ish ways in how like grotesquely over muscled or over designed some of the characters can get but yeah I think that makes it a really fun read because of just how wildly interesting and crazy the art can get and how like dynamic it can get so it's a really fun action manga so far and just the intrigue of just like what is up with Hina the danger between this girl and I'm also generally compelled by, like, Nozomi and her desire to, like, make a name for herself in the world of professional fighting, of underground MMA fighting. And also just of this tease of, like, you know, Nozomi can hold her own against Hina. She's not as strong as her, but she has the experience to be able to fight her. And just, like, what the series could build up to in terms of, like, a confrontation, a real fight between them, which would be really interesting. Because, I, I mean, that's definitely what Hina wants at some point especially now that the series has introduced characters who actually can land blows on Hina and might actually give her some competition now that we're gonna get some really interesting stuff I think in terms of like the fights in terms of like about how brutal they can get and how crazy they can get so if you're a fan of like crazy over-the-top fighting martial arts series like your Bakis and Kengan Ajras, I think that you will have a fun time with this series because the it has the same kind of like over-the-top personalities hyper-exaggerated action with like these crazy design characters and it's just a lot of fun i think so far in terms of being that kind of series oh yeah for sure like th this this is i would definitely put this in the baki category of like fighting action manga for sure the thing that kind of strikes me about this series is that it's i don't know about you i thought it was a lot more dense than I was expecting, like, just in the way that, you know, we have these three characters from, you know, three different factions or walks of life, whatever you want to call them, and they all have their own kind of separate issues to kind of deal with, and they kind of have to figure out how to, like, sort of use their resources and kind of help each other in order to make up this underground fighting arena, and then, you know, you introduce Hina, who has just her own thing going on with possibly being the daughter of somebody who leads a cult and she might be pulling the strings maybe and she might have a lot of her own power. I don't know. I, I just, I really thought like the first chapter in particular, there was like a lot going on and a lot to set up and I wasn't really expecting that, but I really like how it all comes together though. Yeah, I actually, that did surprise me a little bit because I was just expecting, oh, it's going to be a little more straightforward about like Hina I thought she would be like more of a shonen -y protagonist in terms of like wanting to just become the best of the best of, you know, underground boxing fighter just based on like the limited knowledge I had about the series. But yeah, I mean, I think that the layers of the premise and like also the setup of it, you know, really we're focusing on Nozomi's perspective. And I think she's really the, the central character of all this, even though Hina is kind of the face of the series and like the main fighter. That is, I find, like, really interesting uh, and compelling. Like, Nozomi's story of, like, you know, she wanted to be just a legit professional fighter, but because of her Tedach retina, she couldn't do it professionally anymore. So she still wanted to make it in MMA, but now she, you know, can't do it herself the way she wants to anymore. But she's still, like, chasing after, like, that world, that dream that she's really interested in. She's a part and she wants to stay a part of. And she's, like, kind of trying to live her dreams vicariously now through Hina. But, like, uh, you know, Hina is also, like, playing her and her team for as if 
we've yet like maybe not fully like explored reasons but like just for the surface reason right now of like oh she just wants to fight strong people and like have some fun fighting strong people I also just like that dark twist on kind of a very shonen staple kind of personality trait. So uh, that makes Hina's character fun too. Just like kind of this darker version of like the shonen protagonist want of like, oh, I want to fight strong people and be the best. And like, okay, here's like an example of that when it's taken to kind of a darker extreme. And if like the villain had that personality. Yeah, for sure. I think it is easy to assume that in the sort of prologue in the first chapter, it's easy to see like how unassuming she is. Like she looks like she could fight, but you don't expect her to be like as monstrous when it comes to like her strength and her technique. I really love the way a lot of that is sequenced, especially the two pages where like she's about to take a hit from her opponent. She ducks down, kind of sort of almost like vanishes out of thin air as she goes in for a counter, and she literally leaves like a like a fist dent in her face. Like the, she's she scares the shit out of me, honestly. Yeah, no, she is like a, <laughs> she is an intimidatingly, creepily cheerful character, and I really I like that type of character archetype, and I think he is a great example of it. Oh yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, it's a great setup. That chapter here is a great introduction to the the series. I think it it's a lot of fun so far, but I am like excited now that we're gonna get some more like even fights that are not just you know one shotting her opponents in extreme ways. Because I think there's even more potential there now too. Now that we have people get people as monstrously strong as her. Yeah, I'm glad that it seems like we'll quickly be getting people who are more even with her on the playing field because I I think it would have been easy to just kind of have most of this beginning portion be just her one-shotting opponents like you know like that's kind of fun but you can only go so far with that so like I'm happy that we're kind of like inching out of that territory early I guess but yeah overall this is fun and again like you said a lot more layered than I was expecting this to be I think at one point I was having a little trouble keeping up with like all the setup that was going on because that first chapter, there's a lot of setup in that first chapter, but it's all like really interesting and you really want to see where it goes. But yeah, I would definitely read more of this at some point. I want to see where this goes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So from one MMA martial arts fighting series to another, now we're entering our newest Shonen Jump simulpubs. And we are going to be starting with Martial Master Asumi, which is the latest series by Kawada, the creator of Hidomaru Sumo. And as a fan of Hidomaru Sumo, I was very much excited to see Kawada's uh, next work come out. And especially now that it'll be available uh, officially in English from the beginning, whereas Hidomaru Sumo's last couple chapters was one were simuled on Manga Plus. But Marshall Master Sumi is about Nito, who is the second eldest son in like this fairly large family. His grandfather, Baku, was a very well-established martial artist in his day. But sadly, over the past couple of years, he's started to lose kind of his memory. He has like Alzheimer's, so he's like confusing people for different people. Like he often confuses Nito for his elder brother Kaz. Uh, uses like the his elder sister for mother and all sorts of things like that and his memory is just like very spotty in that regard except when it comes to martial arts training 
Nito has this routine with his grandfather where like every day after school, he basically trains with his grandfather. And in those moments, like his grandfather has a very clear state of mind. He's like very much able to train Nito and fight and talk to him very clearly. And that's the only time that he acts lucid. Other times, his memory is just really, really uh, spotty. But Nito, because he had been trained by his grandfather, has developed a talent for being a martial artist, in particular as a grappler. He's not really into fighting himself. So like even when he gets picked on like by bullies, he really doesn't fight back. He kind of just wants to live more of an average life. He really doesn't have too many aspirations other than like nursing because he does really care about his grandfather and wants to take care of him. And he thinks that might be like kind of the best path forward for him. But like one day at school, he kind of interacts with and is like helped out with a classmate of his now who he finds out is a aspiring like professional female MMA fighter. She is the daughter of like someone who runs a MMA gym, the Yoshi's MMA gym. And she starts to recognize talent in Nito for his martial artist ability after like learning about his grandfather, after like like overseeing his like grappling skills when he's fighting off the bullies later. And so she tries to recruit him into joining her family's gym and to joining the world of MMA fighting. And Mito initially is reluctant still to really get into it, even though his best friend Yuya does really want to become uh, involved in MMA and joins along. But he starts to get drawn into it more, both after like a, a test fight with Nao's father, and then later after running into his elder brother, his estranged elder brother, Kazuro, who previously had trained under their grandfather, but left the family many years ago to become a professional MMA artist. And, you know, Nito hasn't seen him um, very long ever since and resents him for abandoning their grandfather when he needed them. And so Kaz has become a pretty well-known figure as an up-and-comer MMA fighter. And he's even, like, uh, really respected and liked by a lot of the people at the dojo, even by Yuya. But Nito is reluctant to kind of forgive Kaz, and especially after Kaz kind of arranges things so that Yuya, in his, like, first practice match, is, like, really seriously injured and beaten by, like, Kaz's partner in the fight, uh, Hiroki Doi. And that gets Nicho riled up to try and avenge Yuya by like defeating Doi and then having a match with Kaz in which, you know, he really gets riled up and wants to defeat him out of respect and revenge for their grandfather. But unfortunately, he loses to Kaz. And in doing that, that kind of gives him the motivation to be like, okay, now I really want to pursue the path of being an MMA fighter so I can have a rematch with him and I can defeat him. Though he also does grow some admiration and respect for practice of MMA fighting by watching like now also as she fights in her current tournament, which is like to help her qualify for going pro. 
But also, as we find out, Kaz is a more like kind of complicated, nuanced figure than just like being a, a jerk bully because he believes in Ito's potential to grow as an MMA fighter. And so he kind of orchestrated this situation in order to kind of build buzz. So like this rivalry between his brothers that will kind of give them a story and edge that will like help him in his career of establishing himself as an MMA fighter but then also it will kind of motivate Nicho to kind of continue on with MMA so he's kind of manipulated Nicho for kind of his career aspirations but also out of a genuine belief that you know he thinks that Nicho can grow to be a real challenge for him as a fighter and has real potential in the sport too but yeah, I, of course, you know, was a big fan of Hiromaru Sumo. I think that Kawada's art is really strong, like his character designs and the way that he draws like really impactful action sequences. And you definitely get that here in the manga too. Especially a lot of the grappling was that that's also another attention detail I really like is kind of like how the manga like really goes into kind of the rules of MMA of like official MMA fighting and sees like different techniques that you would recognize from wrestling and MMA. It's really cool to see those depicted in the, the fighting style. So it's not just like, oh, we'll traditional like beat him up. It's like you have like this real sense of strategy in this fights. You have like these different like kind of techniques and these rules of the characters are kind of following in order to win the fights and I think that is really that makes things really interesting and the series so far has been able to create some really compelling matches in terms of like you know using the fact that this is MMA having like characters with different styles kind of go up against each other and so far it's remained rather grounded in terms of the kind of techniques that are being used albeit of course you know with the exaggeration that action manga would have in terms of how certain acts would be depicted in terms of their intensity but yeah i really think that it's really strong from the art standpoint but also character standpoint like it's like kind of a slow build to like kind of really establish like nito's like motivation to want to join mma but very quickly on through the introduction of kaz and the rivalry between these brothers and then building on nito's motivation for you know his love for his family and his grandfather and then also like his resentment for kaz for leaving the family and their grandfather behind and wanting to do right by proving to Kaz that the martial arts teachings of their grandfather were valuable, were of use, because Kaz also like left the family behind because he didn't find his grandfather's teachings useful to him anymore. Like I think that is like a very compelling conflict to be at the center of the, the manga. It's very personal. It's very emotionally charged like the moment where Nito is like reacting to defeat and also how now really is as crestfallen as Nito for his because she can really empathize and relate with really wanting to win against someone and you know just that crushing feeling of loss from her own experiences and so I think that the series has really found like this really really nice compelling core and I like that it has these really great dual protagonists in both Nito and now as they're both pursuing professional MMA and they have their own goals and rivals that they want to overcome 
And again, I also think Kaz is such an interesting, nuanced character than just being like a jerk or bully because he is very clearly playing the heel to kind of, for his own benefit, but also to motivate Nito's growth. And as we find out, he didn't completely abandon the family. Like he still actually talks to his mother and sisters. Uh, he also like is sending the money from his martial arts earnings. So like Nito finds out he kind of had the wrong idea about Kaz completely abandoning the family it turns out like he just wasn't talking to him because he himself like was just so upset about Kaz leaving that the rest of the family never like really brought him up to him again but like that's another interesting wrinkle in it is Kaz as an antagonist is like really multifaceted I find that super intriguing and also of course the manga has a lot of humor in it like when setting up the character of like Kaz's partner Hiroki being like this former tug who got beat up by like Kaz and then decided to like follow him as his disciples and help him rise in the ranks of like MMA because he like just so <laughs> admires him like that ended up being like a very funny little backstory and then execution of a, of a character there that uh, Nito proceeds to like defeat fairly easily so yeah I think this is really really entertaining so far uh, and I really got really hooked into it uh, to do that conflict between Nito and Kaz as it got fleshed out within the first couple chapters. Mm -hmm. I think this is my first time reading any manga from Kawada. Obviously, I've been aware of Hinamaru Sumo for a long time, and I did kind of skim through it a little bit on Manga Plus when that was first picked up for a cyberpub right near the end. Some really unfortunate timing there. And I, I think I've watched the first couple of episodes of the anime, so like... I've seen like a little bit of it. Obviously, V-Lord's a huge fan of it. So that's part of the reason why I'm also very aware of it. It, it is on my list. I do want to get to it because I, I have always been interested in checking it out. But this was really my first time actually really engaging with anything from Kawada for the most part. I really wish I had the time to like read more because I only read like the first three chapters of this. I will say I was not... I was not expecting it to be as like down to earth and grounded as it was. It really felt like it kind of took a bit to get to the action because like a lot of the beginning of the first chapter is kind of dealing with Nito and his family and what they sort of go through and trying to take care of their grandfather, who obviously clearly has Alzheimer's and, you know, ha have to kind of deal with like taking care of him and all that, which again, th that's, that's probably the most down to earth aspect of this series. Something that felt like really real to me that like I wasn't expecting in a Shonen Jump manga, honestly. But yeah, other than that, this really took me back to our jumpstart days because like if Viz were still doing their jumpstart initiative and we only got the first three chapters of this, I feel like the ending of chapter three really hooked me by the end because like Nito having a match with Now's father, that was pretty good, you know, by itself. I felt like we got to a pretty satisfying point by that end. But then his like older brother comes out of nowhere and I was just like, oh man, okay, I really want to read more of this now. Like again, if this were a jumpstart run, and chapter three ended like that, I'd be like, oh, man, I really want to see more of this. But now, now we don't have to deal with that anymore. Now I can't just read past that point, you know, like, so that's nice. Yeah, because that cliffhanger definitely would have killed me. Like, oh, I want to I want to see his possibly evil older brother, maybe. I don't know. At least he, he looks evil. I'm sure that 
that's not really the case. But he's he's definitely intimidating, you know, at, at the start. But yeah, I, I do agree. Like, this series is definitely like a slower build, which, again, those kinds of series do kind of worry me when it comes to show to jump in particular, because unfortunately, we see that a lot of the time, you know, those series aren't always rewarded. But also, it's Kawada, like, he's he's an established creator at this point, so I'm I'm sure Jump is willing to give him a li- little more leeway than an actual, like, totally newbie artist, which is good. But yeah, I liked what I read. I definitely want to read more. Uh, honestly, it just makes me more interested in reading more of Kawada's comics in particular. So there's that. Yeah, I am definitely very happy that we have a new Teenage Mutant Kawada. And yeah, I like Kinomarsumo. I also felt that for most of Kinomarsumo, it also had very grounded kind of action. So I think Kawada is very talented in like sticking with grounded action, but just making that look really interesting. Yeah. And particularly with MMA and the different like fighting styles that he can play with, I'm really excited to see the kind of matchups that he created because he already had like some interesting examples, uh, particularly recently with now going up with her first opponent who like they have completely different fighting styles. So I'm really looking forward to seeing like how the series continues to kind of develop we kind of follow both Nito and Now's journeys in terms of entering the world pro MMA and also like trying to surpass their rival figures, respectively. Mm-hmm, for sure. I definitely want to read more of this at some point. I cannot say the same thing about the next series. Really? Oh. Yeah, I have, I have, we'll get into it. I have, I have a lot of issues. <laughs> Well, the other new Weekly Shonen Jump series we have to talk about is Icehead Gill by Ikkyo Hachia. This series uh, is set in a fantasy world, very snowy fantasy world, where our protagonist, Gil, is the son of a legendary warrior, Drekisol. He used to be known as, like, a hero of the kingdom, the leader of, like, this band of, like, powerful fighters that protected the capital and the kingdom. But apparently, a few years before I to the start of the story in this kingdom, the kingdom of Ash and Ice, Drek- he seemingly turned on his comrades, killed the prince, a lot of his allies, and fled. And so he became an enemy of the state, and so has Gil by proxy. Gil was helped to escape by his master's servants. He found his way to Urchin Island, where he was raised by his aunt Mela, who is like the queen of the island, and she's known as kind of the Ice Queen because she's very kind of cold and very demanding and getting taxes and taking away like anything that washes up in the island in terms of like weapons and supplies and stuff. And also especially when it comes to outsiders and like imprisoning them or taking them captive. But, like, Mela clearly has a soft spot for Gil, even though she forces him to do a lot of hard labor. She also, like, does care and look out for him. So Gil does have a lot of love for her. But then one day, uh, Licht ends up washing ashore on the island. And in a fight with one of the villages, like, resident Sakuro, he ends up getting slain by him and taken over by the Licht. And in fighting the possessed Zakuro, he learns more about Licks and starts to kind of put two together of like, hmm, you know, when Zakuro got taken over by a Lick, he became a completely different person. Maybe this is what happened to my dad. Maybe this is what really happened. And so he decides to go out on a journey to find out what really happened to his father. 
He has his father's journal, which has a brooch and relics that is like a clue to some special relics. So he can't like lead the language because it's in the language of the trolls. So he basically, yeah, sets off on this journey to the royal capital and just to find his father's relics, to try the truth about what happened to him and clear his father's name. Along his journeys, he starts to learn more about kind of the state of the kingdom and that the kingdom itself is perhaps not the fairest of things because they are very cruel to outsider groups. Uh, in particular, when he runs into Sana, who is from this group of mages who were kind of ostracized from the kingdom and were kind of hunted down. And so she is now kind of like a thief who is kind of like living on her own and like looking to kind of preserve like a lot of literature and books and stuff like that. But yeah, she also is in possession of a relic of herself, like which is like a air arrow. She can shoot arrows of air. Though there is a, like a drawback to using it too much. But basically, yeah, Gil and Sana end up kind of sort of becoming allies, though Sana more so reluctantly, Gil more eagerly. But in the process of doing that and finding off the bandit who is after them, they run afoul of another Licked, but this Licked turns out to be one of the sons of the Demon Lord. And so in fighting him, Gil does find out the truth that, yeah, his father was possessed by the demon king, the Licked King. But like he hasn't been taken over yet because he has resisted being fully controlled. So his father is still alive, but he hasn't completely lost his sense of self yet. So Gil is now, with the knowledge that his father is still out there, going to go off to search for him. But he's also now run afoul of the other princes. So he has to fight them off. And also he's now being pursued by the kingdom and like the warriors who used to be peers of his father, like coming after him. I personally enjoy the series I think Gil's a nice, earnest character. There's a lot of Demon Slayer vibes, I guess, Absolutely. from the series, too. Yep. You know, especially with the concept of the Licks and them taking over people and, like, kind of turning them into monsters. And also this idea of, like, trying to reach through to the people the Licks used to be and try and find their sense of humanity and self in them. I think the second chapter was a really strong example of that, of, like, just kind of the way that the women who were possessed by the Licks, like, like she as she's like dying like her previous selves like memories start to kind of interfere or like start to pop up again and so it is kind of like just a commentary on just kind of this horror and cruelty of like you know being taken over or losing control yourself you're no longer yourself but then a part of you still remains yeah it's very melancholy that idea and very tragic and I, I thought that chapter in particular was a really strong example of it. But I, I think that as we've continued onward, I really like the introduction of Sana and learning a little more of the lore of the world. And also, I think Sana is an interesting character in terms of her personality, in terms of her motivations of like, she wants to like, she sees the kingdom as an enemy and she wants to like, 
she wants to take out the kingdom because they exiled her clan and stuff like that. So I think that is an interesting kind of conflict dynamic that she has with Gil as they've kind of become reluctant. At, uh, well, in her her perspective, she they're reluctant allies. Gil is pretty on board of being an allies with her. But yeah, and um, I think that the revelation that like Drucky was taken over by a Licked was something I expected. The fact that it's like the Licked King is like. It makes sense and it's like a bigger revelation. I think they maybe it is a little surprising that they've kind of played the hand of like that's the fate of Drecky and he's still out there pretty early relatively, but you know, this is a series that really needs to get the attention. And I think that kind of establishing the stakes and like, okay, here's what Gil needs to work up to in terms of like fighting off these other sons of the Licked King, these other Licked Princes. And then also he has to deal with the kingdom also after him because he is Drecky's son. I think that there's enough layers here of conflict that makes this story intriguing and interesting. And I also do like the art style. I like that it plays on like these kind of Nordic vibes. Uh, I like the snowy landscapes. I am enjoying this so far. I'm definitely curious to kind of hear your thoughts though on why it didn't quite connect with you. Yeah, so... Unlike with Martial Master Asumi, the only reason I didn't continue on that was because I didn't really have time to. This one, I kind of opted out of Chapter 3, and I don't know. From what you're telling me so far, maybe I will get into it more if I read more of it. I don't know if I really want to read this weekly. Maybe I'd be open to coming back to it, but for right now, at least when I read these first three chapters, I I don't know. It just I have a lot of little issues with it. I think that kind of compound into my overall negative feelings on it. I mean, I guess the first thing I'll get out of the way is that you're totally right. This series feels like it's very, very heavily inspired by Demon Slayer in a lot of ways. I really need to get this out of the way. Gil, when I first saw his character design, I thought, is that from Goku? <laughs> yeah, he does have Rengoku's like red and yellow uh, spiky hair, so you could definitely confuse him. Like, oh, maybe that's younger Rengoku. Like he he literally looks like he's he's like Rengoku's long lost younger brother or something. Like that was honestly kind of distracting to me. He just he just looks way too similar, and I don't know if that's intentional or if it's just like lateral thinking. I don't know. Maybe lateral thinking. I don't know if Ichia maybe has was an assistant Kotoge's. That might explain some of the stylistic similarities between them. Either that or they were just very influenced by Demon Slayer and, and Gotoki in terms of uh, their art style. Yeah. I can definitely, you can definitely trace influences. For sure. And that's not me saying that's a bad thing, but at the same time, you know, there are some parts where that is kind of distracting for me. But what's more distracting for me is that this might be just a me thing. I don't know how to put this. And I think it's especially a problem in the first chapter. I feel like every page of the first chapter of this series especially has either way too many panels or like all the panels are way too small. So like there are some times where I feel like pages are a little cluttered with maybe one too many panels. The word bubbles are also like way too small sometimes and are also like really wordy. So like it was just one of those things where it's just I just kind of felt like the reading experience of this wasn't very smooth. I felt like there was a lot of visual information, you know. This is a series that like has a lot of detail in places and I don't know, I just I feel like that kind of like really took me out of it. But I understand if that's like totally just a me thing. So that was one thing and then 
I don't know, like the first chapter overall, I think I would say has some good moments, but overall I just thought was fine. I wasn't entirely sure. I guess the motivations of some of the characters kind of confused me a bit, and I think we could have maybe shed a bit more light on those, like specifically with Mela in particular, because her whole thing is that she kind of rules this village and forces the villagers to pay like a tax so that way she can buy weapons for the village to like protect them. And it seems like that wasn't always the case, like she didn't start off as ruling the village, like maybe she was like just another one of the villagers, and she somehow kind of made her way into this position. And I don't I don't know, it just kind of felt like, because we also get hints about like, because there's this one guy named Zakuro who kind of tries to like confront her and Gil, and you know, when he gets taken over by a Licked, the Licked obviously has access to his memories, and we get a throwaway line where it's like, oh, you seem to be like childhood friends with Mela or whatever. And I don't know, I, I feel like we could have used a bit more exploration of like their relationship and how things kind of came to be with her ruling the village and where their relationship is at this point. I, I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of blanks that need to be filled that I don't think are filled all the way. Cause like I guess I just don't really understand because Gil kind of makes a point about how like, oh, you know, the way she probably went about things probably was a bit much, but like she was just trying to protect the village and I guess I just don't understand why she felt the need to, like, rule the village with an iron fist in order to, like, gather a fund for, for weapons for the village in order to protect it. I don't know, it just came off to me as, like, very, like, a very roundabout way of wanting to protect the village when I just kind of feel like there was no reason to, like, force the villagers to help her in this way. I don't know, I, I thought a lot of that was confusing and didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, like, as far as, like, the motivations for her character, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I do think that it was kind of a choice that was like written to be like, oh, the takeaway for this is like, you thought that she was this cold, greedy person, but actually she was like doing this for the sake of protecting everyone because she wanted to protect the village. But it's like, yeah, when you try and kind of peel into like, well, why did she need to do this? That's when it sort of becomes a lot more flaky, flimsy of like, well, maybe you should have gone about this a different way rather than like trying to force everyone to like pay taxes or like immediately commandeer anything that washed up on the, the island. Or like maybe there could have been more of a understanding from the villagers of like why she needed to do this rather than keep things in secrecy. Yeah, I just don't really understand how she got to this point, I guess. It just doesn't seem like there was much of a reason for her to go about it this way, which is a shame because I, I like the turn of, oh, she may have seemed cold, but she had a reason for doing what she was doing. There was a reason for her going about this the way she did but i don't i as far as i know they never explained the reason why she felt like she had to go about it this specific way and i i think that's a huge hole in the story so that that's kind of the thing that like took me out of it because i, I kind of like the idea of zakuro because at first you just kind of think like oh he's just a guy trying to rile things up and cause a scene but then again you have the throwaway line where the licked invading him possessing him mentions that like they kind of have a history and that they're childhood friends i would have liked to maybe explore that a bit more i think that could have led into an interesting backstory of why of why mela did what she thought she had to do i just i just think there was like a bit more to explore there and i think that could have made her an interesting character and kind of shown a little bit more light on their relationship and have zakuro evolve past just being a guy wanting to make a scene and trying to rebel against her 
which I also kind of felt like when I got to that bit and I kind of had to read it a couple times, I was just kind of like, well, yeah, I'm kind of on Zakro's side. Like, why does she feel like she needs to do this? Like, I'm I'm kind of with him. Like, I don't really blame him for feeling like that Mela is just kind of taking advantage of the village, you know? So I don't know. I, I just feel like her motivations are very shaky. I think that was my biggest problem with the first chapter in particular. And I don't know, like, outside of that, I don't know. Th this just didn't really pull me in very much. And I don't know if it's because this series has way too many similarities to Demon Slayer to the point where it's a little distracting because when I kept reading through this, I just kind of kept thinking about Demon Slayer. And I, I don't mind when other manga clearly takes influence from other series because almost every author in Shonen Jump does that all the time. Like, I, I know that. But it needs to be at a point where, like, it's not distracting. And other readers' mileage on that may vary, but those were just kind of my issues with this series in particular. And I don't know, like I said, I wasn't really compelled to read past the third chapter of this, but I maybe I will come back to this because, you know, everything you were kind of discussing past that point seems interesting. I just don't know if I'm willing to read this weekly or not. I'm really trying to think. Again, I hate to call it early, but... Even with as cold as I felt on uh, Mecha Ude when we covered that earlier in the episode, I do think this is kind of my least favorite series out of everything we're covering so far. Even as cold as I felt on Mecha Ude, this just had too many issues, story and comic reading-wise, I guess, for me to kind of, like, stick with it, but that's just me. Well, I think that can be fair in terms of, like, some of the unanswered questions of the first chapter or some of the way the first chapter is written. I think that overall, I am pretty on board with the story. I do like Gil as a character. I do like kind of what they're doing with the liches. I, I, did, I think the second chapter, that story was very compelling. The story of like the guy and his fiance that got turned into a lich and, you know, his fiance's little sister and like kind of that tragedy of that situation and that. But, um, yeah, I, and I do think that the introduction of like Sana and like kind of the larger world building it has been really interesting too so i do like the series and i feel like you know hey if this is the weakest series that we read in this batch i think that speaks to the fact that hey this is a pretty pretty decently strong batch of series i guess we read though i this definitely i said go is definitely not the one i had the most criticisms and qualms of personally but we'll probably get to those as we move on to the new jump plus series that are available on uh this shonen jump and on manga plus starting with wild strawberry by ire yamamoto this series takes place in a world where Japan has been taken over by these things called Jinka, which are these parasitic organisms that turn people into like living like human flowers and they spread to other hosts through their pollen and they feed on the nutrients of their host body until they bloom and transform. Our protagonists are Kingo, a guy who's trying to survive in this world and protect his sister, Kayano, who has been, like, parasitized by the Jinka. But unlike most, she has retained her sense of self, her identity, and she can control the Jinka inside of her. 
Kingo just tries to kind of like steal to survive, like tries to pass himself off as like a Jinka so that he can steal from shops and not get fought off and trying to protect Kayano and fulfill like what he feels is a responsibility to protect her as her older brother, even though they're adopted siblings. They both grew up in the, the same orphanage, but they're not blood related. And Kingo found out that Kayano was part Jinka when they were adopted together by what they were hoping would be like a new family that turned out to be Jinka who were preying on them and Kayano had protected Kingo then. But one day when Kingo goes out, Kayano ends up blooming their apartment and being attacked by the flower funeral force which are kind of the anti-Jinka unit that like kind of patrols and takes out Jinka. Kingo pleads with them to spare Kayano to not kill her, but they aren't listening to him, and, like, they try to burn her, and when Kingo tries to interfere, he is mercilessly slaughtered by them. Shot right through the chest and the head. Like, mid-sentence, even, of, like, talking to Kayano and saying <laughs> things are gonna be alright. Uh, in that process, something awakens in Kayo. She blooms, uh, she takes out all the Flower Funeral Force members. She doesn't kill anyone, though. She just wounds, knocks them out. And she disappears, but it turns out she has gone inside and parasitized Kingo. And so she is now, like, living basically inside and as part of of Kingo. And after he comes to the decision, he's trying to think about a way of like where how he can cure Kayano and allow her to kind of gain her own like body again, even if it means, you know, because like he was killed uh, and it's like only alive because she's in him, even if it means like he loses his life. And he finds an ally in Maki Makino, who is like a scientist who is working with the Flower Funeral Force and he's part of the research team. And, like, as someone who's studied for years, he's, like, intrigued by the fact that the King and Kayano situation, the fact that they can control the jink inside of them without losing their sense of self and their humanity. And he also knows, like, the pain of, like, losing a sibling. So he kind of empathizes with them and helps them escape and get away. But, of course, not only are they in conflict with, you know, other Jinka that are out there, but also the Flower Funeral Force's own corpse and members. It seems like the only way, like, for them to kind of reach the center of Tokyo, Tokyo Tower, where it's said to be, like, you know, the pot where the Jinka in Tokyo really bloomed and where they're hoping to find answers of how to save Kayano. The only way to do that is to become a member of the Flower Funeral Forest itself. Whether they accept Kingo being, you know, part Jinka is up in the air, but he's like kind of trying to prove himself like fighting a Flower Funeral Forest member and saying, hey, I can control this. I'm not a threat. And so she tests him by like cutting him in half and like means like, okay, let's see now how you react uh, and like provoking Kayano inside of him. But Kingo does succeed in calming Kayano down. And now they are confronted by another Flower Funeral Forest member who is like okay so give me like another good reason are you human or jinka and so with the direction the series is going it really does feel like okay well they'll be accepted as members of the flower funeral force probationary I mean, they'll probably be under suspicion but they will accept kingo into their ranks 
that seems like kind of the direction this kind of series usually goes with, with you know someone is taken over by like this uh, enemy or like this force the protagonist organization is like fighting against you know it's very Jujutsu Kaisen uh, Kaiju number eight Chainsaw Man so yeah that's kind of where the story is at now I think one of the striking parts about the series is that, you know, extremely detailed, you know, these depictions of the city, like just covered with all these vines and leaves and flowers. It's like very, very meticulously drawn, very beautifully drawn. It's like incredibly detail oriented manga in terms of like environments and also character designs in terms of like the line work of them. There's some really strong creepy shading. I do think the Jinga designs are like really strong in terms of kind of their horrifying nature but also you know just the way they are kind of modeled after like real world flowers like I like the sunflower jinka that the girl who like comes after them in the fourth chapter has who like that's another thing is like apparently you know much like in kaiju number eight they kind of weaponize jinka to like use them as weapons and fight with them but um yeah and I also really appreciated striking the use of color in the first two chapters like kind of the transitionary period early on where we see kind of green leaves intersect this white page when we're getting introduced to Kayano after Kingo comes home and of course when Kayano blooms later on the chapter we see that like in full color in reaction to Kingo's supposed death Uh, in the second chapter we also have like kind of similar moments of like especially I thought the use of like black pages was really interesting like after it seems like oh they've been eaten up by like this jinka we have like two full black pages spreads before we have a black page spread which has like three word balloons and then we see like a full color of like kayano blooming uh from kingo and then like breaking the jinka that they were eaten by and uh that just pacing of that sequence just the use of those pages to create like a beat to create impact with that color space page it was like i really it was really interesting i thought it was really clever use of the medium of the pace of reading a comic to kind of create impact in a way that you know wouldn't have be the same if you just went from like the page of like them being eaten right to the page of them blooming or even with the page with the word bubbles in between so I thought that was really cool. That that was really great. Except at first, I did think there was something wrong with the show to jump app. I was like, "What? Oh, oh are the pages not loading?" <laughs> so I I had to like close it and reopen it a couple times until I realized, like, "Oh no, no, that's that's intentional." But still, yeah, no, that that was definitely one of my favorite parts of this series so far. That was a really great moment. This was definitely one that I had seen a lot of buzz about. Definitely quite a few of our mutuals were kind of into this. I think even our good friend Zach from Uchu Shelf even did like a mini review for it on YouTube. Yeah, and Ray, the editor of the series, uh, also a friend of the show, they are very uh, happy and excited to be working on this. They are also blown away by the art of the chapter, and they recently wrote a post on LinkedIn kind of uh, describing like how much they've uh, been enjoying working on the series. Mm, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah, I thought this was pretty good. I think the first chapter is very, very good, very engaging. Uh, this was one of those things where before I read it for real, I did kind of like open it up on the app to see like, oh, 80 pages. Oh, this is going to take forever. No, that first chapter really goes by like really quickly. 
I had the opposite feeling on this that I did with Icehead Gill in particular, where the first chapter that kind of took me a bit to get through, because again, I feel like there are way too many panels per page, also very wordy with a lot of small word balloons. So that was part of the reason why I didn't enjoy reading that in particular was because I it did take me a little while to kind of get through that. Uh, whereas with this, I just kind of felt like it blew by. Like you said, the art is really meticulous and really great. Weirdly, I don't think I thought about how much work it probably takes to draw this in particular until I got the chapter five where Kingo almost gets entirely taken over by the Ginja that's obviously in his body. And we have that spread of him in the air after he jumps off that building and you see like all kinds of vines coming out of him along still with the like vine covered cityscape in the background. I think that was around the point where I thought like, Boy, this must take forever to draw. Like, holy shit. I cannot imagine the work that goes into drawing this in particular, because like like you said, it's very meticulous, but I think it's all worth it. It makes the setting feel very lived in and very, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Realistic? I don't know. That's probably not the word. Uh, lived in is probably the word I want to I mean, there's definitely a lot of sense of realism in the way that the environments yeah. are drawn. Quickly buildings, uh, a lot of the plant life that aren't Jinka. So it is incredibly impressive. Like, Ray... Made the comment in their link ping post that it's like, this is such a incredibly detailed series. And what's really impressive about it, especially is that the artist is like pretty unheard of. This is like their debut wow. work. And this amount of detail is as polished as that of a seasoned professional. And in addition to the art of the manga, they're posting extra art for the series on their Twitter on top of it all. I have to imagine they have at least a couple assistants on this. There's no way they're doing all this by themselves. Yeah, I mean, definitely they, they can't be doing it all by themselves. I would be so surprised. But even with assistance, you know, the art direction how the artist is giving their assistance and still like the detail work in the series and both backgrounds and character designs is really, really uh, immaculate. So it definitely stands out and it does a lot to give the series its own unique feel and make the world feel so well realized. For sure. Um, I guess my biggest thing with this series is that obviously I really enjoyed what I've read. I definitely want to keep up with this as much as I can. I don't want to, how do I put this? I think when I first started reading the series, I was very captured by it, like the art, the premise, uh, the story beats, how they were executed, everything. I think that first chapter is genuinely really good. Again, I'm sure I've talked about this on the show before, where sometimes I do kind of dread 80-page first chapters, but uh, I think it actually only took me like 20 minutes to get through that first chapter, which I, I think is a really good sign of how readable your comic is, at least personally speaking. I guess my only thing is, I think it starts off really great, but... and. I don't know if this really bothers me in particular, but I, I really couldn't help but think like, okay, this is definitely turning into the kind of series that like, like you said, Jujutsu Kaisen, Chainsaw Man, Kaiju number eight, where the main protagonist becomes the thing that the other characters are fighting against and they're seen as a threat, but then they think, oh, we could actually use them. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll welcome them to a part of our extermination team or whatever. Like, that's definitely a premise that we've seen a lot at this point and I think is another trend in terms of, you know, different story beats. But honestly, this is one of those things where, like, this series is executed so well that, like, that doesn't really bother me personally, but I can see that maybe being a sticking point with other readers if they happen to be fans of those other series and maybe are looking for something a little different. But I don't know. So far, I think the series offers enough to the point where 
I don't think that'll bother too many people. But again, I, I just thought it was worth pointing out because I think I could see that being a sticking point with some people. But still, for us, I'm assuming it doesn't really matter because, again, this series has been it's executed so well to the point where it doesn't really bother me in particular. But that's just me. Yeah, I admit that, you know, just premise wise, you know, the kind of tropes the series is dealing with, I felt that was very familiar territory. So I wasn't like as compelled by that. What is really drawing me in and kept me really interested in keeping reading it, it has been like kind of just the artwork and the execution so far. I think that the artist is incredibly talented in terms of their sequential storytelling and just in their artistry. And so I really want to follow along on that level so far though the story i think i'm still waiting for it to really hook me in terms of making me like invested in like kingo as a character in kingo keanu and like some of the side characters still need some more time to impress i think my favorite character so far is the sunflower jinka that is like the partner of like the flower funeral force girl that is uh, attacking in the latest chapters and like i just like his personality and just the back and forth that he has with his like human partner but like i feel like i think kingo is just a little too sullen of a protagonist a little too like serious like i kind of need a little more personality in terms of his interactions with other characters something that kind of livens him and makes him like a little less oh i'm burdened by the responsibility of like caring for my sister and reviving my sister so i'm just hoping i'm just hoping for a little more of that to really kind of humanize kingo uh, ironic word choice there but you know just to make him a little more personable rather than like, oh, he's very serious and sad and focused on this one goal of his. I, I kind of want some more dimension outside of that. That's totally fair. Again, I I'm at a place with this series where, again, I think I'm pretty sold on it personally. But I also do have to acknowledge that, again, this is very similar in a lot of ways to other manga. But again, even with that, I'm really looking forward to reading more of this. I think it's done just enough to kind of separate them from those other series. But at the same time, you know, if you notice those similar story beats and can't really unsee them, your mileage will vary on that kind of thing. But for me, the series does enough to where I'm, I'm very into it personally. I'm very curious about how you feel about this next series, actually. Yeah, let's get into the other new Jump Plus addition to both Shonen Jump and Manga Plus. We've got Shoujo Null. This is set in a world where these, like, kind of mass-produced robots that are, you know, human in appearance, that are made out of organic materials called Gijins, are widely used. They're used in both employment to do like kind of service jobs, like as convenience store workers or cashiers, delivery people, and they're used for military purposes. But they're also considered very disposable because they are just considered, oh, these are just robots to be used for like human use. But as it turns out, the Gijin are not just mindless robots. They are living creatures who are like being controlled by some sort of parasite that is implanted in their brains that is like used to control them and suppress their consciousness, emotions, and feelings. 
our protagonist's father was part of like a resistance group who was like trying to free the Yijin to expose the truth of like we've been lied to that the fact that these Yijin aren't human they aren't living beings that they're just being enslaved basically and they want to try and uh, expose the truth because you know Yijin are like considered so disposable that they are like killed and slaughtered just horrifyingly commonplace but he and the rest of his resistance group is like murdered by a bunch of police officers who uncover them and destroy their base and uh, Rihaya the protagonist escapes with like kind of the Gijin woman that his father had helped though you know unfortunately as it's revealed that woman even though he lived with her for a time she was like eventually uncovered and taken away but that experience that incident has like made Riha want to help create a world where like Gijin can live normal lives alongside humans and they're flee from their enslavement to humans. He uncovers an escaped Gijin that survived like a transport accident with other military Gijins. She was the only survivor. And so she at first is acts like utter Gijin in terms of like, you know, she's pretty monotone, not very expressive, a little too complacent in following like Riha's orders. But Riha still like kind of wants to help her and wants to kind of help her find her own sense of independence. And we do see a sense of even with under this parasite's control, she has this childish side to her where she's like they go to a playground and she like kind of, you know, plays around with different animals and with the playground equipment and stuff but then an encounter with live streamers like teenage live streamers who are like trying to find the runaway Gijin like they encounter them immediately and they get kidnapped by them taken back to their home and it turns out that this live streamer guy is the son of the police chief who killed Ria's dad but in the process of them playing around with Riaha and like messing with her stuff and in particular the remains of her comrades that she had in her pockets and disrespecting it and throwing it on the ground, something snaps in her mind and she is able to control nearby Gijin. So she controls the maid Gijin of this guy and like she uses it to attack his friends. So she ends up also getting like saw bladed through the head. But that removes her parasite in her mind. And so that kind of allows her to have more expressive personality. And she basically goes on a slaughter spree of all the stream live streamers. And so Riaha is like at first like saying, hey, stop, you're killing people. And she's like, am I doing anything bad? But then when he thinks about how awfully Gijin had been treated, he's like, nah, you go ahead, Marie. And so far... Currently, Marie's like, oh, I just want to live a normal life. I want to do fun things. I want to enjoy myself. I want to make friends, fall in love, laugh. And she asks Ria's help in order to do that. And she also wants to create a world where Gijin can live normal lives. And she jokes that, oh, I could kill every human besides you to make that happen. Maybe that is the solution. And in the opening page of the first chapter, we kind of have this <laughs> tease of like, oh, I've made up my mind, I'm going to kill a human. So eventually it seems we might get to that point where she's like, yeah, I've decided that killing all the humans uh, is the way to go. You know, following the good word bender. <laughs> Futurama there. 
he was a prophet. He he told us the way. Then yeah, and uh, yeah, as we continue to read on and see all the other cruel, horrible ways the Gijin are used as commodities and spectacle, it's not hard to like blame. <laughs> Marie for kind of coming to that conclusion that that might be the way to go because uh, we see like in the second and third chapters like this play put on with Gijin that are live murder plays basically they're live snuff plays where Gijin are murdered for the entertainment on stage of human audiences and that also snaps Marie in that instance and it seems whenever Marie snaps and kind of goes into mode where she's able to like psychically control a Gijin and becomes kind of her dark personality like her hair literally turns black. She can't remember that experience afterward like her memory of like the traumatic thing she has witnessed. She just completely forgets it when she reverts back to normal. So there's this kind of mystery there of like why she has this kind of ability as this military grade Gijin or like what has given her this ability to begin with. But, uh, and also, Ria and Marie have to keep themselves, like, out of public spotlight too much, lest they be pursued by, like, the police officers, uh, who are, like, tasked with hunting down the Gijin, the special public security police, who, like, the police chief, who is the father of the streamer kid, he, uh, he just doesn't care so much about the fact that his kid died and his half-house turned down so much as, like, oh, I hate the Gijin and the rebels and our job is to like kill, massacre them all. And that's what really is motivating him. Just like the blood is clear bloodlust. Sociopath is definitely an understatement. Yeah, he is just completely 100% just cruel to the bone and psychotic. Like we see this scene of him doing this raid on just what turns out to not be any criminals at all, like anything that modded the escaped stolen like military Gijins. But that didn't stop them from like slaughtering everyone they could find and then stealing their drugs and doing the <laughs> drugs while on the job. God. It's like insane. Very cartoonishly evil character but admittedly stands out in just the grazing cruelty of him. But yeah, now it seems that someone may have discovered their secret. I have a suspicion that it may be another escaped Gijin. We'll find out there are other Gijin kind of out there who've kind of broken free of their control from the parasites and are having like their own underground resistance thing. I think this series is like a very provocative in terms of like kind of the violence of it and also kind of the, the cruelty and the, the premise. Admittedly, it's a premise that I have seen before uh, in terms of like this idea of like these robots are actually not robots at all. They're, they're humans that have, we've been lied to to think that are non-human. But like it's a premise that's always ripe for exploration of kind of classism and humanity in terms of like how people are treated and how what we regard as humanity and then kind of the cruelty that human beings can be capable of to other humans. So I think that that can be explored in like maturely interesting. I don't think the series is really going to kind of follow on that path. It seems very much like on the level of shock, horror and violence and like not too concerned with like more of the complications of the morality at play. Like it seems pretty eager to be on the side of uh, Marie as she's killing. But also it paints like the people she kills as like so unlikably and shallowly cartoonishly evil that you can't feel any sympathy or sorry for them. So it doesn't really portray like multi-dimensional characters very well. I also think that Riyaha is sympathetic, but he could be fleshed out a little more. 
And Marie, I think, is like kind of more classic yandere, but uh, I think she is a fun personality in her dichotomy between the childish side of her and then just like the gleeful, like, oh, I'll kill them all side. So, you know, I, I do appreciate that. I think that this is probably, of the series we have read, my least favorite of this batch. Just because I think that conceptually it's like just very kind of at the surface of what the potential of the premise could allow. And I don't think that it's fully fleshed out its characters quite yet. And I do think a lot of it is like, oh, shock violence on top of shock violence and cruelty on top of cruelty. But though it does have a sense of humor to counterbalance that, but it also, I think that's a, a weakness of a lot of kind of dwelling on some of the more ethical questions that could be arisen. But, you know, I think that even though I say that this is my least favorite series, it's not that I dislike the series or think it's a bad series or at all. I just think that I felt with reading this series that I'm kind of, I kind of still am waiting for it to kind of take shape in terms of like what it is trying to really say, if it has anything it really wants to say or explore any deeper at all, or if it is going to be kind of just what it is on the surface of like, oh, well, it's, you know, we're going to be following Rhea and Marie. It's like Marie eventually uh, comes up against more cartoonishly, like one eventually <laughs> evil people and just uh, kills them all. And so I'm waiting for a little more dimension in the conflict, more nuance in the characters. I think that's totally valid, honestly, because, like, I enjoyed this for the most part. I don't think it's bad, but I also can't help but feel like, yeah, honestly, the more I thought about it, because I didn't really think, I guess I didn't really think too deeply about the series, like, while I was reading it. I was just kind of experiencing it in the moment, but, like, now that I kind of, like, think about it more, I mean, this series is not for the faint of heart. Like, it's very violent, very dark. If you're not ready for that kind of stuff, you might want to stay away. Yeah, I, I would say it's very upsetting, too, just conceptually, the fact that the Gijin are enslaved. Like, it's very heartbreaking the moment where the woman that Ria's father, like, takes the parasite out of, she, like, starts breaking down in theories, thinking about all the things that she was forced to do against her will. And it is, like, really disturbing, upsetting, like, when we see the Grand Guignol, like, the snuff play that is put on with the Gijin. Yeah, and honestly, thinking about it more, the series feels... Interesting in the moment, but I guess thinking realistically and in the long term, it is kind of hard to see like, oh, well, are we are we actually going to do more with this premise or is it just kind of like, is it, it feels very surface level so far and also like, it feels like the kind of thing that I think we've seen in other manga and stories before. Like, I think it's very easy to just be like, oh, well, humans are bad. Am I right? I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay with it right now because like, I guess there is some... There, there, there is something to Marie and um, Riahav running into people who obviously the public doesn't know that Gijin are like real human beings. And so like it is kind of interesting to see them run into people putting Gijin through these like horrible acts, horrible twisted acts and not realizing that they are human. Like, you know, the stuff with the director and him putting on a play, I thought that stuff was kind of interesting and definitely very shocking. I would be kind of turned off if, if the series just kind of did that for most of its run. Like, I kind of want it to get to a point where it's like, okay, we have to do something about this system. We have to tear it down from the inside out. Like, I kind of hope we don't stay in this territory for too long of where it's like they keep running into different people who are like sick and twisted and keep putting Gijin through the ringer because they think they're just like robots or, you know, they're anything less than human or whatever. Like, I do hope the series doesn't just stay in that space for too long because 
I mean, aside from it getting kind of old, it would just be kind of depressing to keep constantly going through that same thing over and over again, you know? Yeah, I think that, yeah, it just needs to be like kind of more, it needs to be more about that than just, the appeal needs to be more than just like, oh, seeing uh, Marie kill people just gruesomely and violently, and then the horror of like seeing these aging murdered and tortured. Because I kind of, yeah, just need to have more of a sense of what's the heart of the series, you know? I need more from the sensual relationship of Riaha and Marie in terms of like, why they really care for each other, you know? Like, I can understand, like, why Riaha feels a sense of indebtedness and wanting to kind of protect Marie, but I also kind of feel like we need more genuine feelings from Marie about, like, why she cares so much about Riaha as, like, a friend and, like, as someone who has kind of helped her in this situation. So, yeah, I mean, I just think there needs to be a much kind of stronger core and drive to the series than what I'm sensing right now. Because right now, I feel like the appeal is a lot of just the goriness and just the brazenness of the violence. And I personally just want a little more than that. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. Like, I kind of enjoy it, but... You know, it's also, it's not like amazing, I guess. It, I really hope it evolves into something more eventually, but that kind of remains to be seen. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't think it's like bad right now. I just think that it still hasn't really kind of found its voice in what it's trying to say, or if it has anything to say. Aside from everything that happened at the Gijin play, I did like a lot of that stuff. That stuff for me has been kind of the highlight of the series so far, but I really hope this series eventually evolves into something more. Because again, I, I don't want it to go through the same cycle of, oh, we run into a person. Oh, it turns out that they're like really sick and twisted and fucked up because they're using Gijin for these like weird fucked up experiments. And they don't even know that they're human, but they're still really fucked up. Or I don't know. I I don't want it to get into a like a pattern of that. I, I need something a bit more than that. I don't want the series to like rely on that on that plot beat, I guess. No, I think that's a very good way of putting it of like, oh, right now the people is like, don't you see how fucked up this is? How crazy this God, is? God, humans are fucked up, right? <laughs> yeah, it's gotta be more than just like shock value stuff. Yeah, for sure. Now we're moving on from Jump Plus titles available through both Shonen Jump and Manga Plus to one that is just on Manga Plus for now, Mikane and the Sea Woman by Aoki Kizaki. This story follows Mikane, who is a high school kid. His parents divorced and separated, and, you know, his dad continues to live on the island that they grew up in. But, like, the mom, like, they went to Narada, Tokyo, and so he lived with his mom alone for a while. And, you know, he just grew up and stayed in Tokyo. Uh, he wasn't visiting his uh, dad very often, but... His mom, in the meantime, started dating again, got a new boyfriend, and they started to get close to the point that they were talking about living together, but, you know, her boyfriend was reluctant to live with both her and Mikane. And overhearing this, Mikane decides, okay, I'll go live on the island with dad for his mom's sake. 
But Makane, his life on the island is kind of blasé, melancholy. He doesn't have a lot he's super passionate about. Not a lot of whole dreams to the future. He's got friends, though he's oblivious to the fact that one of his best friends, Yuko, has feelings for him. But yeah, he just really doesn't have anything he's super like passionate about. He just feels out of place. That is until he discovers an injured woman, a woman who has like cut on the bottom of her foot. He, like, goes to try and help her, and in the process, when he takes her home, her wound has already healed, but she's, like, seriously dehydrated. And so he puts her in a bathtub, and he discovers that she is actually a mermaid, a sea slug mermaid. So he becomes transfixed with this sea slug mermaid, who he just refers to as One-san. And he tries to help her, like, while she's on the island, but, like, she cannot stay, you know, on land for for long. So eventually, they have to part ways, and she returns to the sea and says that they'll probably not see each other again, which really bums Mikani out, because he became really interested and really close with this mermaid but even though he wants to see her again and like go into the sea she like warns against it because there are many cursed beings in the sea beings that absorb negative emotions and one of those beings are the ones that attacked her a monster that feeds the mermaids but they are really kind of two people who are generally like feeling like they are alone even though they do have people around them and so they sort of form that kind of connection in that way and that's why their parting really disappoints Mikane and noticing this Yuko, who has crush on Mikane, decides to go searching for the Onesan, like all over town. And seemingly, she has encountered her again on the beach. There's also like a potential like love square between like Yuko and then like another one of their friends that I'm sure will get developed further. But that's kind of where the story is at right now. And yeah, I think this manga, it starts off on a really impactful note with just like this sequence of like seeing Makane's early childhood from his parents' separation to, you know, him just like growing up and then, you know, his mom getting into this new relationship and then him making that choice so that she can live with her new boyfriend. I really like the layout of the panels, but I think that generally, uh, the panel layout, even though it usually relies on just box shapes, is very strong in creating a great pace for the comic. And a lot of the illustrations are just really striking and beautiful. I think that, you know, especially the design of the Onesan Mermaid, the sea slug form, I really think that's very well shaded and it gives off like this great air of otherworldliness. And yeah, I really think that there is a strong sense of beauty. It's not an overly detailed manga, but when there is like detail, I think I really enjoy how they depict the seaside, the beaches, uh, and then the underwater when we do see glimpses of that. So I think it's really beautifully drawn uh, and has strong characters. And I think that, yeah, the core story of like kind of these two kind of lonely souls who don't feel like they belong meeting each other and resonating and then like 
forming this connection. I think that is really compelling and uh, interesting. And I obviously also there's this element of Mikane has like this crush on the Onesan that's not really reciprocated. But in terms of like a story of growing up, first love crush like it's a interesting place to start in terms of like him thinking about like his future kind of maturing through this friendship relationship he starts with Oda it's on and of course there's this kind of love square now developing between Mikane and then Yuko and Eugene and I think uh, I really like Yuko's character. I like the detail that she's like a Twitter artist. And she's not like a big artist, but she's like very proud of the art she posed. And I thought that is very endearing. And I do like her very obvious crush on Akane, but just kind of the general way she acts around him. And then also kind of her supportiveness, like seeing how depressed Mikane is that the only son is left, like she goes searching for her. And, uh, yeah, I really like her character and then, like, her friendship with Bakane. And then we just got introduced to their other friends, Eugene and Chi, but they seem really uh, interesting too. Eugene, in particular, someone who's like sees that Yuko really cares for Mikane and like encourages her. When clearly he also is harboring feelings for her himself and is, has a little mixed feelings about that. But yeah, I think that as a series that seems to be about growing up, finding your place in the world, finding your people, this series has a lot of potential and uh, it really grabbed me from the start. And it surprised me in that the Mikani and the Onisan like separated so quickly, but perhaps their reunion isn't too far off. And I'm really interested in seeing the direction it will continue to go. Oh, yeah. I don't think I had a whole lot of expectation for this going in because I didn't really know anything about it before reading. I was very pleasantly surprised. The series so far is just very, very good. I agree. I think it's drawn very well. That opening sequence of Mikane in Tokyo, clearly acclimating to his new life and like really enjoying his new life in Tokyo, and then coming home to eventually find out that his mom's new boyfriend won't start living with her because, you know, she has a kid and that really breaks her heart. And it breaks my heart even more that he feels like he has to go back to the island in order for his mom to actually, you know, find love again. That's that that makes me really sad because like I, I don't know it just makes me feel sad that like he feels like he has to do it to make his mom happy when you know he's obviously not happy living on the island because he doesn't feel like he belongs there yeah i mean he's leaving his whole life there behind like he has friends he has a crush there he's like grown up there for so long but he's like you know, he really cares for his mom to the point that he's willing to give that all up just so his mom can be happy. And it is, like, very heartbreaking, but also, uh, you know, admiral with him. It's a great way to endear us to him. I also, again, really love how this sequence is paneled. Oh, yeah. The use of the street-by-street street grid structure is done really well to create these snapshots of this moments of time, this montage. And I think that, you know, this choice of, like, framing his early childhood this way was really well done especially when the format breaks with the final bigger longer panel of him telling his mom he wants to go live on the island and it stands out from the panel structure of the rest of the manga as well which has more varied panel shape uh, layout sizes yeah because at first i thought like the whole first chapter at least was going to be like that which i'm sort of glad it isn't because i do enjoy the way that the paneling in the series is structured uh, it's sequenced very well it's very easy to read 
I especially enjoy some of the one-page spreads in here, too. Like when, what is it, when, when Yuko tries to visit Mikane, and Mikane tries to tell her that, like, he has a relative over to try to cover up the fact that he has a mermaid in his bathtub or whatever. And she gets flustered and leaves, and then we, we kind of have that moment where, like, she's kind of slowly walking out of the house, and then just kind of, like, stands outside while the cicadas are kind of ringing outside, and... She kind of has her back turned to the viewer like we don't really we don't really know exactly what she's feeling in that moment. Like obviously you can make a guess, but like it's very ambiguous about what she's feeling in that moment, but you can tell that like it's a very sort of like awkward somber moment and I I enjoy how like the manga kind of gives you time to like kind of take that in. Like maybe she knows what's going on or maybe maybe she realizes like, oh, like maybe that's not his relative or like, I don't know. It's again, her like her her feelings are very ambiguous, but I, I still enjoy that the manga kind of gives you time to like kind of stay in that moment, you know? Totally. And also, what was it? The, the the page where like Mikane is letting the mermaid back into the ocean and they kind of have like one last hug goodbye. And you just have that page where like it's them in the ocean you can clearly see in the ocean like all the fish and jellyfish kind of swimming around kind of like illuminating the scene a bit kind of give it some lighting like honestly that's probably the most beautiful page in this series so far and yeah i think in general mikane and his arc of like wanting to find some place to belong in his loneliness i think is definitely a great emotional hook it's probably the strongest hook for me in this series so far and i don't know i just i just want him to be happy you know, best case scenario, I, I hope the mom leaves her new boyfriend, because honestly, I don't know. I, I know it was Mikane's decision, because he's a good boy, and he just wants what's best for his mom. But, like, he shouldn't have he shouldn't have to leave his mom just so she could have a new boyfriend. Yeah. Like, that's, I don't that's know, terrible. That like a red flag. <laughs> yeah. Especially because the boyfriend, you know, met Mikane, too, right? Yeah. They took that step, but it's like... I don't know. To me, it seems like kind of a red flag. Like, he doesn't want the commitment of raising Mikane as, like, a stepfather. Yeah, I don't know. I I feel that's kind of a red flag in terms of, like, his level of commitment to his mom. Yeah, like, you know, I, I get that the mom's upset. Like, she has every right to be upset. But realistically, you know, time heals all wounds. I think she'd feel better eventually. But again, I like that it was Mikane's decision, because I, I think it would have just upset me if, like, for some reason his mom was like, hey, can you go live with your dad? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it didn't go in that direction. That just would have made me even sadder. I think that would have been a much more frustrating choice. Yeah, it would, it would make his mom much less sympathetic. It would also yeah. make Mikane have not as much like agency in that choice. Like having him make the choice is like a stronger way of endearing us to him and showing how much he really cares about his family. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, um, I don't know if I have like a whole lot else to say so far because the series is still like very early in. I'm just I'm just really enjoying it so far. I I think this has potential to be probably one of the stronger series on Manga Plus currently, honestly, if not already. I would agree. I think this is one of the strongest new Manga Plus debuts we've had in uh, some time. But they they've been a plenty of good series. But yeah, I I this one really stands out, and I think that you know I am really interested in seeing how it continues to explore this coming-of-age story involving Mikane, Yuko's friend group, and then how that'll be intertwined with, like, the still kind of ongoing kind of mysteries of, like, the One-san mermaid and, like, what her ultimate character arc journey will be as well. For sure. 
but I think we have one more series to talk about on this episode. We do. We are going to wrap up by discussing a series on Manga Up. It's been a while since we talked about a series on Manga Up, but I thought that they were, had some new additions that are basically simuls that I really was keen on talking about. This one in particular caught my eye from the premise. And also, I was more into, like, reviewing Manga Up stuff again because they recently removed one of the biggest, like, sticking points against it, which was the fact that the chapters that you unlocked were only available for, like, three days. Now, when you unlock a chapter with the purchase points or whatever, they stay unlocked. So they won't expire on you, which uh, goes a long way into, like, making the service a lot more appealing and useful. But with False Child, this comes to us by uh, Taku Kawamura, the author of My Clueless First Friend. This series follows a Tanuki who is mistreated by humans in the past. So her scheme is to make them cry in revenge by transforming into other humans and tricking them. And so the first family she tries this with, she sees like the picture of a little girl. And so she transforms into her to try to trick her mom. But it doesn't quite go the way she expects the mom cries but without her having to do anything she doesn't really understand why but as we come to find out it's because the little girl that she transformed into yuzu has passed away at a very young age so seeing the tanuki transform into yuzu it gives her mom nana a little bit of comfort and closure especially like as you know they continue to like kind of live together she eats fried chicken like yuzu there's this very sweet moment of like ever since her daughter died nana has been like making too much fried chicken has only been apologetic about it because she's still making yuzu share but now with the tanuki there as yuzu there are no leftovers and in general nana and her husband kohei they find a lot of closure and comfort in having the tanuki as yuzu be around them remind them of yuzu and kind of be like a new adopted daughter they are very like reluctant to protect the yuzu's memory of course so like when they recognize that the tanuki is not yuzu so there's like a chapter in which kohei is driving to find where the tanuki's home is so like where they could drop her off but they in general are finding themselves like kind of enjoying living together with the tanuki Eventually, though, they encounter Manobe, who is from, like, the Agriculture Forestry Department. Specifically, she is in charge of the false child system. And uh, Manobe is also a shape-shifting animal. She's a shape-shifting cat. And she was also an adoptee of the system. And this system is basically, you know, when animals, like, shape-shift into humans, especially, like, deceased humans that live with their families... Manobe are like people from the agricultural forestry department come to visit the house to offer like kind of this adoption system where they can like adopt this shape-shifting animal as a family member and care for it because these are you know endangered and protected creatures but they have the ability to like live with humans and if they enjoy living together with the new family their family enjoys and is comforted by their company dead it's a situation that they uh, are willing to support 
But also what always sees that the false trail system is a system that also, even though it's a shape-shifting animal conservation program, it's also as much a system for the sake of bereaved families like Nana and Kohei. And so at this point, the Tanuki has also realized that the girl that she transformed into is deceased and that gives her mixed feelings and a bit of melancholy of like you know she feels some guilt about having done that like she still is like committed to the sea of like making like humans cry but like she has mixed feelings about the fact that she has rekindled these memories of yuzu that she may have not had the right to do that and she's like when it comes to the point where nan and konhei are about to adopt her she does make it clear that hey I, i'm not yuzu but i do really really enjoy living with you the fried chicken that you make is the best and so they do become kind of an adopted family with the acknowledgement that no the tanuki is not yuzu but she is a child that they accept into their home all the same it's a funny series it's actually very i feel like a lot of the humor is very yotsuba-ish in terms of like the tanuki is very naive she doesn't really understand a lot of human culture and conventions so there's a lot of her like getting learning about something new and getting excited about it and also her misunderstanding like why she has made someone like cry uh and so she does something like enthusiastically mostly that it's like oh it's actually like kind of a positive thing she's doing like when he, she sees that kohei is crying she thinks oh it's because i'm close to nanachan he's jealous of me getting closer and she's like hey i'm gonna get close to nanachan even more now and he's like uh thank you and so there's like uh fun moments like that there's bits of humor where it's like the tanuki just her eagerness to like play humans but also the fact that she is like ultimately sympathetic and like uh she understands when she understands that yuzu the girl she's trying to do is gone and like the effect that has on nanakohe she you know also has an understanding of like kind of care to comfort them and also to be honest with them that yeah she she also enjoys having like a family around her but yeah i i really like this kind of story where it's like hey this grieving couple adopts a new child into her home and she just happens to be like a shape-shifting tanuki who reminds them of their daughter but is not their daughter as they you know come to acknowledge I think also outside of the family, the story of like Yuzu's best friend also finding closure for like how she feels about Yuzu passing through the Tanuki, her meeting the Tanuki was really powerful too. Cause you know, she was a young kid, so she, she didn't know how to process her feelings of grief. She did, couldn't cry and she felt guilt about the fact that she couldn't cry when Yuzu passed away. But then like seeing the Tanuki as Yuzu like continue to act child in a way that you know she has kind of grown past and makes her understand that oh yuzu you're you're gone now i'm the only one who has continued to grow up that finally makes her cry but she's like thankful to kind of had that epiphany thanks to tanuki and able to finally shed tears of grief and find kind of closure on her feelings of her friend 
And so, yeah, the series, it's very charming in, like, its humor of, like, again, the Tanuki just misunderstanding human culture and then getting eager about her misunderstandings in a way that is actually either, like, helpful or it's, like, mostly to the bafflement of other people. But also, its real strength is in, like, kind of these really powerful emotional moments in which, like, the Tanuki gives the people who are so grieving their deceased daughter their best friend like a way to kind of process their grief and kind of move on and then find like uh, a new person to care for a new child to care for in the tanuki a new friend in the tanuki and uh yeah i i find it very charming and compelling so far yeah i don't really have a whole lot else to add other than yeah i agree this series is very is very cute very sad too so definitely a winning combination Again, I, I had no expectations for this going in, so I definitely wasn't expecting a series about a Tanuki who takes the form of a of a child who passed away. That's that's really dark at first, but it turns into something really, really sweet as it sort of takes the place of their daughter and like you said, it kinda helps them, you know, through the grieving process. But it, it is also still pretty funny too. I think the first time the series got a really good laugh out of me was when the Tanuki, obviously its whole thing is it wants to try to make humans cry and get its revenge or whatever. And the Tanuki wants to make not a cry in particular. And uh, oh, what was it? There's a bit where she's like trying to figure out different ways to like try to make them cry. And she just kind of keeps going through like, oh, what if I ate your fried chicken? And they're just like, um, I don't know, I wouldn't really care. And like, oh, what if I punched you? Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, you couldn't make me cry and then she kind of like takes a moment and then she's like well i'm still gonna punch you like <laughs> it's still yeah. I, I thought that was pretty good again i only read the first three chapters of this on manga up in particular but i really think it's was it chapter two where kohei the dad is introduced and kind of noticing you know his wife nana and how she's been compared to before the tanuki kind of like made it into their lives and like how much more happy she seems and that, like, kind of makes him cry. And, again, I, I like that the Tanuki, like, this still feeds into its motivation of, like, wanting to make humans cry. But they don't know that it's, like, oh, that they're helping them, you know? Like, I, I just I just kind of like that misunderstanding. I think it's very cute. Yeah, I appreciate that it is succeeding in making humans cry. But not by being mean to them by actually like you know providing them a source of like emotional comfort and release and closure for their grief and like that is very sweet and it's very endearing yeah in this case they actually need a good cry so it actually helps them yeah uh, especially in the case of like yuzu's friend sachan who again couldn't cry when yuzu passed away that that was very powerful mm-hmm I also like the chapter where they go to the grocery store and the Tanuki tries to like basically learns what capitalism is. Yeah, and so she tries to make her own money out of acorns <laughs> to like buy all the things she she wants. And uh yeah, she has to be told, wait, no, you can't just make your own money. <laughs> That is pretty funny. Yeah, and the mom tries to tell them, oh, well, you can't just use your powers to make money. Like, that's that's a naughty thing. That's bad. And that makes the Tanuki think, well, wait, what about transforming into another human? Like, that's bad too, right? And, like, the mom kind of has a moment to, like, reflect on that. And I, I really love the page where it's, like, you know, the Tanuki and the mom standing in the street, shadow behind them. Like, it's 
I don't. I, I just. I just like kind of like what we were talking about with Mikane earlier. I really like. I really like manga that like takes a moment to like kind of not wallow, but kind of like take in those moments of like kind of let the characters like think about what they just said or like kind of reflect on their feelings. She kind of thinks on it, and then she's you know realistically she doesn't have an answer for that because she doesn't really she kind of likes in a sense having her daughter back and having her daughter back in her life but in the sense she's still kind of wonders like i don't know if this is a good thing or not you know she she doesn't have an answer for that like she doesn't know and i and i think that's realistic you know yeah but yeah o- overall i mean i've said it the last time we talked about manga up i'm still a little wary about using manga up just in general but mm, I don't know. I do kind of want. I do kind of want to read more of this. This is genuinely a really great series so far. So I don't know. I might. I might purchase some points, and I might read on ahead, or I might wait for volumes for on this. I don't know. I haven't really decided, but I. I do want to read more of this. This is genuinely really compelling. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So I'm definitely gonna continue keeping on with it, and. uh yeah, I think that there are also some other manga titles that I've been um, interested in catching up with, and we may talk about some more in the future now that I feel like the app is like improving. It's kind of listened to the feedback, and it's getting uh, better. So, yeah, I- I'm glad to be able to preview really compelling new title like F- False Child. And uh, I think that we were able to cover a lot of really interesting different titles on this Simulpose episode. And I appreciate always being able to cover different titles from different publishers in particular. So it was like a nice kind of eclectic mix we had here. And um, yeah, I mean, we're certainly not caught up yet. Uh, there's still about just as many uh, simuls that are continued to come out. I mean, there's still plenty of manga plus editions that uh, we'll need to get to at another time. But I think this was like a good catch up on some of the stuff that we were most interested in and most caught our eyes recently. Yeah, I guess I guess until then, uh, I mean, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode as always. Really hope you enjoyed it. Like I said before, when we have time, we'll cover more Samuel pubs and some more news. But until then, I think we're going to we're going to wrap it up there and uh, we're going to let the good people know where you could find us and the show. So Lum, where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lumramiyasha on the website formerly known as Twitter X, as well as other places where I'm under that name, including Annie List and Letterboxd and Animation Revelation. Wherever there's a Lumramiyasha, you'll find me there. You can also read my reviews, interviews, and more on MangaMavericks.com. We've got a lot in the works, a lot to publish, so look forward to more on there. As also, you'll find the other podcasts I do, including Lum Squad, the Yurisi Atsura Focus Podcast, where we discuss the wonderful and wacky world of Mugatakashi's classic sci-fi rom-com series, covering the manga, the classic anime, the new anime, and more. There's a lot going on with Yurisi Atsura, these days a lot to talk about a lot of episodes planned and banked and hopefully coming to your earbuds soon and so follow us on twitter at lum underscore squad you can find our youtube channel by searching for it in the search bar and we're also on every podcast platform you think of apple podcast spotify stitcher we even cross-post episodes in the Mongrats feed and upload episodes early, oftentimes very early, on the Manga Mavericks Patreon. And if you like the art I make, the thumbnails that I draw for our podcasts, as well as the animations and illustrations I do in general, you can find that stuff on my Instagram at SidArtworks. 
All right, but as for me, I'm Colty. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of my own other podcasts outside of Manga Mavericks that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Over there, you click on the podcast page and uh, check out basically whatever I'm doing podcast-wise, even stuff that I'm not doing anymore, but I still want to link anyway, as well as other guest spots I've done for other podcasts over the 10 years that I've been podcasting, as unbelievable as that sounds. Once again, coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Click on the podcast page and check out everything else I'm doing. But as for this show, you can find every episode at mangamavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash mangamavericks, where at the $2 tier, you will have access to select episodes of the podcast before they go up on our main feed. Basically, if we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited before it's supposed to go up on our main feed, we will put it up on the Patreon at the $2 tier for patrons to listen to before anyone else. Although admittedly, we don't get to do that as often as we would like. That's why we promote that as select episodes of the podcast, not every episode of the podcast. So really, if you want more reliable content, you should subscribe to the $5 tier where we post a new bonus podcast at the end of every month guaranteed. Right now, the most current bonus podcast you can listen to is our second episode of the Manga Mavericks Anime Club, where my good friend Sakaki and I are going through Hajime no Ippo for the very first time. We recently just covered episodes five through eight. Uh, we're basically covering Hajime no Ippo and going through it for the first time about four episodes at a time. It's been a lot of fun so far. I'm having a lot of fun watching Ippo. So is Sakaki. So if you're a big fan of Ippo in particular and you want to hear two chuckleheads go through it for the first time, definitely sign up for the Patreon. Once again, patreon.com slash to not only listen to that, but basically all the other bonus podcasts we put out over the, oh God, four years that we've been doing this Patreon. That's a lot of bonus podcasts, guys. There's not only the Anime Club, but also the Book Club as well, where Grant and I are going through JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Right now, we're going through Stardust Crusaders in particular. That's also been a lot of fun, especially for Grant, who really started off not liking Stardust Crusaders, at least based on his experience with the anime. So that's been a lot of fun to kind of go through and see how our thoughts on the manga differ compared to the anime. Again, we do a lot of cool stuff over on the Patreon in particular. So if you enjoy the Manga Mavericks podcast already, uh, and you want more content from us, once again, patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Go over there, sign up for the $5 tier in particular. In general, the Patreon is really the best way for you guys to support us if you so wish to. Every single cent that we make through our Patreon goes back to the show in some way, whether it be materials for the show, keeping the podcast and the website up, emergency technical difficulties that sometimes do show up on the show where we might have to get our laptops inspected or new mics, st stuff that has happened before on the show, unfortunately, but it was thanks to your guys' support that we were able to kind of bounce back from that stuff, so we really cannot stress enough how much having this Patreon really helps us kind of run the show. And so, yeah, once again, patreon.com slash mavericks. Please subscribe to us if you so wish. But as for everything else, you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mavericks, where we post different excerpts of the podcast and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Once again, youtube.com slash mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Do you have any thoughts on any of the simulpubs we covered this episode or any simulpubs that uh, maybe we haven't gotten to yet, but uh, you want to hear us talk about on the show? Send us an email about, you know, manga, the podcast, whatever you want, really. We love getting emails from you guys because when you send us an email, we'll read it on the show. So once again, mangamavericks at gmail.com. Send us an email. 
But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on so many different platforms at this point, but especially on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you can do this kind of thing. If you leave us a rating and a review, it really helps the visibility of our show on these platforms. But in general, we love getting feedback from you guys, whether it be positive or negative, because we want to use that feedback to make the show as good as possible. And I think that's going to about do it for this episode. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Manga Mavericks. This has been episode 234, and we'll see you guys next time for episode 235. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.